Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Silver down five cents to $14.90. Platinum recorded? Recorded? Live. Live. Well, if the price is $984, they have apparently reset the. Uh, that's showing us what happened to it today. Uh, I have the final price, but I don't have how much it went up or down. Uh, it's $630 for palladium, closing price. Uh, let's see where we are in equities. Dow Jones is down 68 points to 17,851. NASDAQ is off 36 points to 5,172. New York Stock Exchange is down 20 points to 19 points, excuse me, to 10,890. No, actually 10,900 is where it is. Um, U.S. dollar index is up. 0.01, but that's the aftermarket. But in any case, it's 97.45 for today and for this evening. Crude oil is down two two cents in the aftermarket, but I believe it dropped something like a dollar seventy cents during the day. Maybe that's uh, again where I'm looking at aftermarket numbers. But crude oil is closing at the moment at forty nine dollars and twenty one cents per barrel. <clears throat> Let's see what we've got to talk about in addition. Here's something that amuses me, interests me. Here's the New York Times. It says the headline is Titans Clash as Donald Trump's run fuels his feud with Rupert Murdoch. Rupert Murdoch is a media mogul from Australia who owns a number, uh, a considerable, considerable number of American media outlets, including the uh, Wall Street Journal. And here's the New York Times reporting on the battle between Rupert Murdoch and Donald Trump. In the rarefied world of New York moguls, Rupert Murdoch never thought much of Donald Trump. Mr. Trump's divorces and marriages sold newspapers, but beyond that, Mr. Murdoch had no time for his bombastic business style and ostentatious demeanor. Phony was how Mr. Murdoch often described him to friends. There was a t- there was the time when Mr. Murdoch when Mr. Trump screamed that he would sue for libel, after Mr. Murdoch's New York Post reported that the exclusive Maidstone Golf Club in East Hampton planned to deny Mr. Trump a membership. Now, as Mr. Trump holds on to a first place position in the polls while being roundly denounced across the political spectrum for harsh statements about Mexican immigrants and for belittling Senator John McCain's war record. He has already lost the man who controls many of the nation's most important media organizations. That's Trump, or excuse me, that's Rupert Murdoch, of course. Um, In fact, it looks to me that he didn't have any support from Mr. Murdoch to begin with, so you can't claim to have lost that support, but Murdoch is going after him aggressively. It's true, all right, that Donald Trump is being roundly denounced by politicians and mainstream media outlets across the country. Just as they, they, you know, the New York Times said he's been roundly denounced. Yep, that's absolutely the case. In fact, the only group who's not roundly denouncing Mr. Trump are the American people. 
And that dichotomy raises some real interesting questions. And it will raise issues as we get deeper into this political campaign. The New York Times continues. It says, when is Donald Trump going to stop embarrassing his friends, let alone the whole country? And this is from Mr. Murdoch on Twitter. Mr. Ch- after Mr. Trump mocked Mr. McCain for having been captured as a pilot during the Vietnam War. Well, uh, Mr. Murdoch thinks that Mr. Trump is embarrassing his friends and the whole country. I would agree that Mr. Trump may be embarrassing some of this country. But he's also inspiring much of this country. When was the last time you folks had a political candidate that you regarded as truly inspirational? And I'd say the answer is probably Ronald Reagan. We haven't had, we've had candidates that, oh, we like or we despise. But how many of them have been inspirational in recent times? Reagan was. Trump might be. He's certainly, at this moment, he's inspiring people in parts of this country, and at least part of America is inspired. Not just interested, fascinated, amused, inspired. And that means something. You can get a candidate up there who really inspires people. You know, not just entertains them. Now you got something. And I think it's part of the reason why the mainstream media is so virulent in their their opposition to Mr. Trump. Um, Why is he inspiring people? It's because he's trying to tell the truth. It's because he's trying to serve the best interests of the people rather than the special interests of oligarchs and the New World Order advocates like Rupert Murdoch. New York Times continues, it says on Sunday, the Wall Street Journal, the crown jewel of Mr. Murdoch's print company, News Corporation, published a scathing editorial calling Mr. Trump a catastrophe. And the Post, the New York Post's front page screamed, Don Voyage. Get that Don, not Bon, Don as in Donald. Don Voyage under a headline declaring Trump is toast. All that's interesting to me because I sit back and I'm trying to think, when was the last time we had a political candidate who inspired as much negative mainstream media commentary in less than three weeks after he announced his candidacy? I mean, the mainstream is going after, mainstream media is going after Donald Trump, most of it. Um We could think back, when was the last time we had another political candidate that inspired that much disrespect? You could talk about David Duke. He was a, but he was not treated to the same degree of hostile reporting that we see in in the first three weeks of his campaign. Yeah, they caught up with him. He was disparaged and and, uh, discredited. But George Wallace, same thing. He was treated with more respect than Trump's received so far. At least initially, they didn't come right out and in the first three weeks just call his campaign a catastrophe and do everything they could to ridicule and disparage men. If we could revive Adolf Hitler and enter him into the presidential race, even he might not inspire as much negative press in such a short period of time as Donald Trump. What's all that tell us? 
Well, if you believe the mainstream media is built on honesty and integrity, it tells us that Don Trump is a terribly evil man. The mainstream media is clearly against him, and if the mainstream media is good, then it follows that Trump is a bad guy. On the other hand, if you believe the mainstream media is largely dishonest, corrupt, and controlled for the benefit of the government, New World Order, and oligarchs, the headlines castigating Trump tell us that Trump poses a serious and legitimate threat to the lying, corrupt politicians and the New World Order elite who are seeking to destroy this country. Some people think Trump's candidacy is intended to serve the Jews under some conspiracy theory, or maybe Hillary Clinton, or whoever, somebody, by Trump's ability to split the Republican Party and guarantee that a Democrat will win victory in the next year's, uh, in the 2016 presidential election. But I think the mainstream media's instant, repeated, and venomous attacks on Trump are evidence that he really is a populist interested in America's best interests rather than the special interests of government and the elite. Trump scares the elitists because he's one of them, but he's not with them. A billionaire who is apparently working against his own class, working on behalf of the American people. That's pretty amazing. And it would be easy to sit back and say he's just faking it. But I believe the media outrage against Trump is legitimate. They are sitting back and they're, they're not, this isn't, this isn't a, a false flag operation where they pretend to be against him when really they're for him because he's a billionaire and they're run by billionaires and so on. The media coming after Trump tells me that he could win this thing. And it scares, I think it scares the elitists again because he's, he's one of them, but he's not with them. I think he scares the government, Republican and Democrat leadership, because he could win. Worse, he could win without the elite's support and without being obligated to them. Worse than that, Trump seems determined to try to tell the truth. If so, he's the natural enemy of all liars in politics and all liars in the mainstream media. I mean, how do you fight a man who bases his arguments on the truth? You have to have a superior truth. If, if he's a liar, all you need are lies to defeat him. You can defeat him with lies. <laughs> but if he's telling the truth, you have to overcome his truth. You have to, tell, you have to say, no, you're lying. You're mistaken. Here's what the truth of the matter is. And I doubt that there are any candidates right now for the Republican nomination or the Democrat nomination who are prepared to just come out and say, Mr. Trump is lying, and here's why. Because Trump has the resources to chase down any statement his opponents want to make. And he can show where they're wrong if they are wrong. He can show where they're lying if they are lying. We have a class of politicians right now who are running for public office, or running for the presidency. And most of them have been in the, poly, the political racket for some time. There's some relatively young people that are fairly new to the, fair to the, fairly new to the political game. Right? But most of them have been at it for a long time. They, they were elected to state legislature and then to Congress, maybe to the Senate, maybe to a governor's office. They've learned over time that there's some things you don't say. 
It has become second nature to them. It's automatic that they don't make foolish, controversial statements. And after 10, 20 years of being in politics, they have created a kind of inhibited speech for themselves. They, they go up there, and it's like a beauty contest for them, where they'll stand up there and smile and wave their hand, you know, like Miss Arizona. Huh? But they're not going to say anything that might be controversial. And they've conditioned themselves to think that way and act that way. And here comes Mr. Trump. <laughs> and he is controversial. And he is coming out and saying truths that many people believe need to be said. And he's saying, saying those truths in a way there's, uh, that's, that's brash, audacious, and impossible to simply ignore. And I think the average politician is completely unequipped by habit. It's just their nature. They haven't been telling the truth for so long. They've been inhibited about telling the truth for so long that now they are confronted with a candidate who, oh my God, he's not playing by the rules. He's telling the truth, at least trying to. I don't think the average politician knows what to do. I mean, they can, they're, not, they're not bound up by their habitual lies and attempts to just avoid saying anything controversial. Avoid saying anything so true that it's controversy. Don't just, don't say that. You know you're going to offend somebody. You're going to lose some votes. Just stay in the middle. Trump's not staying in the middle right now, and anyone who wants to compete with him is probably going to have to stay away from the middle themselves. You're going to have to come out into Trump's part of the end of the political spectrum where Trump is telling the truth, and if you want to defeat him, you're going to have to talk the truth also. I am just delighted to see Mr. Trump running for office. I don't know that he's going to win. I don't know how this is going to work out. I don't know for a fact that he's the best candidate that we could expect to see, but he sure is interesting. <laughs> he's going to make, I mean, normally politicians are already talking about it. We're, what, something like 16 months from the election. I wouldn't even begin to pay attention to these people until after the first of the year. But Trump makes it interesting right now. And he's giving people a certain amount of hope. He is inspiring people, as I said before. The man is not just another suit. He's not just another, you know, character from Central Casting. He has something to say. He has something he wants to make America great again. We've had 100 politicians that said the same thing. But how many did you believe? They know what we want to hear. Trump knows what we want to hear. But I have the distinct impression that Trump is saying it. He's saying what we want to hear. Not because he's done a study and said, well, they'll fall for this. He's saying it because it's what he thinks, too. The more I see the mainstream media condemn Mr. Trump, the more convinced I become that he's the one candidate in the whole spectrum who's determined to serve this nation's best interests rather than the special interests of the nation's elites. And right now, that causes me, I sit back and say, you know, go Donald. Go, go, go. I wish him the best. And, you know, his, his manner, who wants, to, who wants to debate this guy? 
We're going to have a debate on August 6th, if I understand correctly. I believe it's the 6th of August that we're going to have the first national debate. They'll bring on the top 10 Republican candidates, uh, the ones that in the top 10 in the polls, and they will be incorporated into this debate. How many of them do you think want to go there if Donald Trump is going to be on the stage? I'm going to make you bet that the people that are lining up for this coming debate, they're sitting back and say, oh, my God, oh, my God, I just hope Donald doesn't say anything about me. I hope he doesn't say anything about me. I mean, who was it? I can't think. Senator, can't think of his last name. He's described Trump as a wrecking ball. And I'll make you a bet that all ten, all the other nine candidates that are come out there, so, oh, my God, don't let the wrecking ball get me. Don't let the wrecking ball get me. I think Trump is a wrecking ball. I think, I think that's an apt description, and I think it's a good thing because there are elements of this government that need this government edifice that need to be wrecked. And maybe Trump's the guy to do it. We're going to take a break for a couple of commercials. When we come back, James Corbett should be here from thecorbettreport.com. Please stay tuned. I'm Alfred Addis, and we'll be right back. Financial obligations or relationship problems have you feeling stressed out? When life is too much to handle, use Apothecary Herbs Emotional Stress Formula. Feel calm and more in control with herbs especially combined to provide the organic nutrition your system needs to help you cope. Complete instructions for maximum benefit and a money-back guarantee. You've waited long enough. Call Apothecary Herbs now. Toll free 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3w.thepowerherbs.com. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. 
American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. I'm Alfred Adask, and this is Financial Survival, brought to you by Discount Gold and Silver at 1-800-375-4188. Our guest guest tonight is James Corbett from the Corbett Report, C-O-R-B-E-T-T, report.com. He he talks to us from Japan. He's been a regular guest for a year or thereabouts. I'm not sure how long you've been coming here, James, but uh, we always enjoy having you here. You've been missing in action for the last three weeks. While you were visiting Canada, your home country of Canada, took your wife and child there, and uh, how was your trip? It was great. It was exhausting. I am completely exhausted now, but uh, ready to go, <laughs> raring to go. Come home to rest up. Come home from the yeah, vacation. Yeah, that's to rest pretty up much it. Um, did you did you really take a vacation? And forget about international politics and economics for a few weeks, or, uh, you know, or was it on your mind part, the whole time? I really, you were up there I really did, actually. So, uh, so <laughs> you, you might throw a few curveballs at me, and I might not be able to answer them. But I, I was keeping an eye on Greece, obviously, and China, and what's going on there. But, uh, but I'm not, I'm not 100% up on everything yet. So, uh, so let's dig in and see what we can get uh, get our teeth into. Let's start with Greece. Were you surprised by the Greek Prime Minister Zipper's capitulation to the creditors' extremely harsh demands? You know, a lot of people looked at the proposals and they said, Greece will never go along with this. They made this this harsh because they didn't want Greece to go along. Somebody wanted this negotiation to fail. And yet Zipper's came along and said, okay, we'll go along with that. <laughs> Yes, I, I suppose I'd say on the bigger scale of things, I'm not surprised. In fact, I, this is pretty much what I was expecting when Syriza first came into power, that they're just another hope and change that are promising the moon and will deliver nothing. And that's ultimately what's resulted. In fact, they've not only delivered nothing, they've actually put Greece in a worse position than they were when they first came into office. So from that perspective, I'm not surprised. Although the, the secu- circuitous route we took to get here is a bit surprising and a bit puzzling in some respects. What was the point of the referendum, uh, which was then immediately not only backtracked on, but completely disregarded and gone completely the other way. Of course, the referendum on whether or not Greece should uh, accept or reject the uh, the European bailout proposal. And of course, the Greek people voted quite substantially. I believe it was 61 or 62 percent uh, to, to know they should not go along with the European bailout proposal. And then and then immediately, almost, it seems, Cyprus went and, uh, and concluded pretty much everything that the, the bailout proposal had originally uh, was asking for. So that was a pretty strange way to do that. And I guess there is a lot of speculation about what was really going on there. One of the most interesting pieces of speculation I've seen is that apparently Cyprus had asked 
Putin in his uh, uh, visit uh, with Putin that he took just as this was coming to a head, he had asked for $10 billion uh, loan or, or some sort of aid in order to start printing drachmas and to basically remove Greece from the Eurozone. And Putin didn't go along with it. So he was left with no, no choice but to basically uh, to, 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 to backtrack on everything he had said. That's one of the theories going around. And uh, that's not a confirmed report, but it's at least one p- potential explanation for why why that particular uh, I mean it's just it, it's it doesn't make sense from any perspective of course it's also political suicide because of course everyone who did ultimately support Syriza and what they were saying are now obviously left in the ditch and even worse in a worse position than they were before which one can only imagine will only be felt uh, by Syriza at the next election are we going to see a third bailout or a Grexit this isn't yet a done deal, or at least not obviously, not not officially. Will it's not all dusted. Bailout? Yeah, it's not all dusted and, and tied in a bow yet. But it's it's certainly moving along towards that point. We've already seen the extension of uh, the the emergency liquidity for the banks, and we've seen the promise of uh, a, a payment to tide over the IMF uh, payments that are due and and things of that nature. And we've just seen the Greek Parliament vote on the second round. Of, uh, of pledges to, to basically go along with this austerity program. So it seems that everything is on track for just a kicking of the can and a further bailout program. And uh, there are some notable voices out there that are against the idea of this going forward. Of course, perhaps most notably the German finance minister Schäuble. But other than that, I, I, I think it does seem like it is going to go ahead at this point. So I I, I imagine at this point we are looking at Greece basically just being continued along the path that it's been for the last several years. And I have no doubt that it will come to the head once again. I mean, I think everyone, even the IMF at this point, admits that there will need to be a debt haircut, that they yeah. they literally can't pay the, the, the debt levels that are being, uh, that, that they are supposedly obligated to pay at this point. It's just a question of how that ultimately, that haircut takes place and in what fashion. Well, they've already reduced the debt by half, 53%, if I recall correctly, back, I don't know, two years ago. They reduced the debt by the existing debt then was reduced by half, and now they're going to have to reduce it again, and I don't think half is going to be enough. Christine Lagarde at the IMF, she said, in order for this to work, we're going to have to give the Greeks a 30-year grace period before they start paying on the debt. <laughs> Give me a 30-year grace period on before I have to start paying out a debt, and you're never going to see any of the money. That's an admission. <laughs> I'm never going to pay. I'm, I'm buying a mansion tomorrow, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Very, very... No, I hear what you're saying. I mean, it is ridiculous. And, of course, this is always and in every context it's trying. It's put into the, the context of, oh, those Greeks, those lazy, good-for-nothing Greeks yeah. took on more debt than they can bear. When, of course, A, it was, of course, the political class, not the, the Greek people themselves that were – behind the scenes, putting these kind of machinations in place, aided, of course, by Goldman Sachs, who enabled Greece to cook its books. I mean, this is now admitted and and on the record official history. Greece helped, I'm sorry, Goldman Sachs helped Greece cook its books in order to even gain admittance to the Eurozone. And uh, I think that what this really speaks to is the utter absurdity of the Eurozone itself and its oversight and regulatory processes for for allowing members into the eurozone organization and then even just the idea of this this 
regional currency that has a, a, a regional central bank, but is a, a bunch of different economies with, in many cases, very little whatsoever in common that are going to use a common currency. I mean, it's by its very nature, it's designed to fail. There's no way that this can actually work unless, of course, the European Central Bank starts to act more and more as the central bank for each of these individual countries. And I still think that this is ultimately where this crisis is heading, if not necessarily right now and not in the Greek case, then maybe in the Spanish case or the, the, uh, the Portuguese case or, or one of these other peripheral countries that are going to crash and burn. I think ultimately the idea is going to be, well, the ECB needs more and more power to act in individual countries. And it's actually in a strange way, although it should be the end of the Eurozone, I think in, in many ways it's actually going to seek to actually consolidate the power of the, the people who created this problem. That may be. Back in the 1990s, South Korea had a financial problem, and I don't remember exactly when, but at 97, thereabouts, I can't recall clearly. And they entered into an agreement with the International Monetary Fund. The agreement was about 40 pages long, as I recall, and it wasn't supposed to be released to the public, but someone got a copy and posted it on the Internet. And I read that agreement, and I can remember it was like trying to chew through a bale of hay. It was hard to read. And I nevertheless chewed through the whole 30, 40 pages, whatever it was. And what became apparent to me, this isn't just suspicion or misunderstanding. The IMF essentially said, we will bail you out of your bankruptcy, provided that you surrender the primary levels of economic power in your country to the IMF and or representatives of the IMF. It was a takeover of South Korea by the IMF. And I have no doubt that what we're seeing with the current agreement with Greece is much the same. This isn't just, gee, we're going to, we're just, you owe us some money, we're going to have to make an agreement here in order. No, this is a takeover. Greece has become a colony. And uh, in South Korea, in my opinion, became a colony back in the late 1990s. And here, uh, here Greece is doing the same thing. And for me, this is evidence what the IMF does. Um, gets you into debt and then makes you an offer you can't refuse. It's like dealing with uh, uh, Don Corleone. Instead of Christine Lagarde, she, have, she learned everything she knows from Don Corleone. Mm -hmm. uh, well, uh, may I just add that you're, I think you're exactly right about what happened in Korea. And for people who don't know that history, uh, Professor Michelle Chosodowski of the Center for Research on Globalization at globalresearch.ca has done some extensive work on that in the past. And he had this article called The, Recoloniza uh, the Recolonization of Korea, Seoul Black Monday IMF Intervention in Korea that talks in specific detail about this and has a, a pretty interesting um, uh, quotation in here about the deal that was ultimately reached, which is that uh, foreign investors can freely buy our entire financial sector, including 26 banks, 27 security firms, 12 insurance companies, and 21 merchant banks, all of which are listed on the Korean Stock Exchange for just 5.5 trillion won. That is $3.7 billion. So basically, it was a fire sale of much of the Korean financial sector that took place yep. as a re result specifically of that IMF agreement. And it really, it really was a, a turning point, I think, for, for Korea financially. 
I can tell you another story. A man knew a man named Terry Lofton. He passed away a couple of years ago now. And 20 years ago, we had meetings called Citizens for Legal Reform here in Dallas. And I knew, came to know Terry while he attended the meetings. And he would go to libraries when they were throwing out all old law books. And he'd, tell you, he'd buy them by a pickup truck at a time. He'd buy all those books. He was, he'd collect this stuff. He was, he was serious about accumulating this knowledge. He wound up acquiring three three-ring binders that were the operations manual for the Federal Reserve. He bought them at an estate sale, and someone had them uh, who must have been connected at one point. He died, and they were there, and the, the, the heirs didn't care. They sold these three three-ring binders. If you wanted to see them today, you can go to the Federal Reserve. They're undoubtedly updated and whatever. But you make an appointment. They'll schedule you for, who knows, three, six months from now. You can spend 30 minutes observing these books. You can't take any notes, recording devices, pencils, pens, paper, any of the rest of it. You've got 30 minutes. You can look at it. And after the 30 minutes, you leave. And if you'd like to schedule again, they might be able to get you in within, uh, you know, another six months. Now, this was valuable documents. Terry wound up selling them to an airline pilot who told me later on that he just threw them out and threw them in the trash because they weren't doing him any good. To me, this was like throwing out a copy of the Gutenberg Bible. But here's the point. Lofton read that operation, those, those three volumes of the operations manuals, and they specifically said that the Federal Reserve would not loan, the Federal Reserve banks would not loan money to alternative energy entities. And this is back in the 90s. If you had solar energy project, you weren't going to get any money that was if the Federal Reserve had anything to say about it. If you wanted to do wind power or any of the rest, you weren't going to get any money insofar as the Federal Reserve could stop it from happening. The only thing they'd lend money on was traditional energy, coal, uh, petroleum, and nuclear. Now, the point to all of this is that the Federal Reserve was controlling energy policy in this country, or at least influencing energy policy, by simply saying, these investors over, or these inventors over here, this technology, it won't get any funding to mention. They'll get some, but not what they might otherwise have expected. This is more evidence that the banks are controlling this country and South Korea, and now Greece, and I don't know where else. But they're exerting a level of control that goes deep into the economic system, deep into the political system. And uh, I'm going to guess that's not contrary to your experience, but I'm going to guess you perhaps haven't heard that story before about the, the Federal Reserve's operation manual. I believe we've discussed it on this program Have before, we? but uh, only, only through that, yes. Yeah, but no, but I... Point. The point is well taken because really and truly the, the power over credit is the power to, if not directly control, at least greatly influence the direction that a society will take. And just as easily as they can direct uh, money away from alternative energy and towards the, uh, the coal or uh, oil or nuclear uh, uh, form of power, uh, so too could they flip on a dime and do the opposite next week or whatever else in whatever other sectors of society they want. And that really is, I mean, the fundamental basis by which banksters can really direct us, uh, uh, the course of a country and, and ultimately of a civilization. Because let's keep in mind, I mean, the Federal Reserve is itself really just a cartelization of the, the 
private corporations of the, the banks that, that make up the Federal Reserve. And uh, ultimately, they all start to to merge together in terms of the Bank for International Settlements, uh, which is the central bank of central banks, so that ultimately there really is a global network of bankers who have the authority and the, the, uh, the ability to do exactly what you're discussing there, not just on a national level, but on an international level. And we see the fruits of this from time to time when a shearing of the sheep comes necessary and they start putting their hands in, uh, out for the, uh, the, the payback that, uh, to all of the, the golden loans from heaven that they've, they've put out in, mm-hmm. in the past. And again, it's really and truly the power of, uh, of life and death over, over countries, if not individual people, and sometimes over individual people. It's consistent with Baron Rothschild's remark that he had words to this effect. He said, I don't care who makes the laws so long as I can control the issuance of money in the country. And they make all laws you want. doesn't matter to me as long as I can control the money. He didn't, that wasn't precisely what he said, but uh, words to that effect. Uh, it is astonishing. You know, most people don't understand much about money other than how to count it. You know, we know we know that the five is better than the one and the ten is better yet. But other than that, people don't realize how much power there is in being able to issue money, control money, and so on. We're going to talk about liquidity when we come back. We're going to take a break right now for a couple of commercial announcements. And I'll be back with James Corbett from thecorbettreport.com. Please stay tuned. condition and emergency rooms and medical doctors are not an option, you need our emergency heart attack kit. Five concentrated liquid formulas enter the system in 60 seconds to protect your heart muscle, strengthen heartbeat, increase circulation, relieve pain, and make breathing easier. When seconds count, you want all the help you can get with our emergency heart attack kit. Easy to use and portable in a one-pound compact kit for your purse, briefcase, or car. Call Apothecary Herbs now for your emergency heart attack kit, toll-free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the three wsthepowerherbscom Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it, It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. 
375-4188. Call now. Hi, folks. I'm Alfred Addis. Our guest is James Corbett from the Corbett Report. We're going to talk a little about liquidity, which is a relatively new concept, at least to me. I only began to see it maybe a month ago, six weeks at the most. I began to see articles. People are warning, uh-oh, there's a liquidity. There's a, there, we have low liquidity. And what did that mean? I, I didn't know exactly. I've been looking since then. Here's an article from Business Insider. deals with the topic. It says, this week's gold crash reminds us of a much scarier risk in the markets. And they attributed the gold crash, where gold got knocked down this last week, to low liquidity. And the article continues. It says, what is liquidity? Broadly speaking, liquidity measures how easily traders and investors can buy and sell an asset in the market without seeing big price dislocations. When liquidity is low, selling can cause prices to plummet. Okay, that's one definition. They go on, they've got another one down below. Uh, here's Deutsche Bank, and they're saying uh, there is no single best metric for the level of liquidity in the market, which to me means it's like obscenity. I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. They can't, they're saying we can't quite get a definition on liquidity. Oak Tree Capital's Howard Merckx offered a slightly less technical and more philosophical definition. The key criteria isn't can you sell it. It's can you sell it at a price equal or close to the last price. For them to be truly liquid, uh, these investments to be truly liquid, uh, one has to be able to move them promptly and without the imposition of a material discount. Now, the problem with how can we talk about liquidity if we don't have a solid definition that we can all sort of agree to and understand? And do you have a single reliable definition for liquidity and the threat it poses right now. I don't think that I could define it any better than any of those previous definitions. And the concept, I think, might be difficult to wrap your head around because most people are not used to buying or selling in uh, conditions or with volumes that would actually affect the price of the thing that they are buying or selling. If we go to buy a pack of gum at a store, it's not going to affect the price of packs of gum everywhere. But when we're talking about large trades and large deals and, and a, a very fast pace of selling on large markets, we can actually see that if you try to dump uh, a, a large amount of stock all at once, of course, you're not going to get the same price as if you were selling that stock slowly into the market. I mean, there's just a certain um, way in which that, that those types of large transactions function. And again, that can be difficult to see how that actually means anything. But interestingly, um, people point, for example, to last October, specifically October 15th, when there was a treasury flash crash that many people may not have heard of, but um, there was a shortage of liquidity in the treasury, the U.S. treasury markets, that, uh, that launched a 37 basis point slide in yields in two hours. And to put that into perspective, uh, statistically, when they 
they try to make a, a calculation of how likely that is to occur. That's something that could, should happen once in over 500 million days, <laughs> i.e. that is not something that should be occurring unless something is very, very, very wrong with the markets. So the question is, what is wrong with the markets? And the whole liquidity mess, as it's being termed these days, is really centering on the U.S. bond market, the treasuries, and specifically because of the QE program and the um, and the, the zero interest rate ZERP policy that's that's been in place uh, for years now has really, really skewed the market. And to put that into perspective, um, at the height of the Fed's purchasing of treasuries, uh, the Fed itself was responsible for 80% of U.S. Treasury purchases. So this is a market that is really, I mean, it, it does, there isn't much room for, uh, for large amounts of selling to take place because there is really only has been for many years now only one principal buyer, the, the, the Fed itself. And uh, if people start dumping bonds in large quantities, there's probably not going to be a buyer for them, which means they're not going to get the price that they theoretically should get for that. That's the problem of this liquidity mess, this liquidity trap. And it's only being exacerbated by the fact that the Fed seems absolutely hell-bent on uh, raising, hiking rates that this year, perhaps as early as September, as some people are saying. So uh, what we're seeing is a turnaround in a 30-year trend of falling treasury uh, rates. And we're about to start seeing some, some hikes. And who knows what, how this is going to unfold, but it, it, I, I, it's hard to wrap your mind around a way in which this will unfold nicely for anyone. Uh, it really is a bubble. I mean, that's, that's essentially what it is. And the question is, can you put the needle in the bubble in such a way that the air slowly escapes in a way that won't hurt too many people? Uh, I've never seen a bubble act that way, but maybe the, the wizards at the Fed think that they can do this. I, I don't think so. I think that the only way down from here is a sharp uh, a, a sharp crash in not only the treasuries, but of course, everything that's that's uh, affected by them. One of the effects of the fact that the Fed has been pumping money into treasuries and lowering the rates artificially is that uh, investors have been looking for high returns elsewhere, which means that they have gone into m much more risky corporate bonds and into the stock market generally, which has created the stock market bubble. And of course, if the, the uh, treasuries start to unwind, that will unwind that further bubble that's been created from all of this. So there are a series of headaches that are created by the fact that we're at this very illiquid position in the U.S. Treasury markets, and we're, we are going to start seeing the effects of this when and if the, the Fed starts its uh, rate hikes. Let me run this by you. I've been thinking about the liquidity and low liquidity problem, and the way it's described and the way it's defined, the definitions seem a little confusing and hard to, me, hard to follow and hard to wrap your mind around. But what it amounts to is opposing... I have a property that is that I assume is worth $100,000. It could be a $100,000 bond. It could be a $100,000 piece of $100,000 piece of land. And you have $100,000, and you might be interested in buying that property. Now, are you going to snap that property up right now? It depends. If we were to define liquidity as inflation a condition of inflation, and you sat back and said, wait, I'll sell on that property for hundred grand, and I know that thing's going to go to 150000 by the end of the year. I can grab that right now and make a fast fifty grand. In the context of inflation, the prices will go up. 
But in the context of deflation, if I've got that same property, I'm selling it for $100,000, you've got $100,000, you're going to sit back there and say, I don't want to buy that property. I'm not paying $100,000 for that property. I know the price is going down, and I know the purchasing power of my dollar is going up. I can get that property at a better deal six months from now, a year from now. So I'm not going to buy right now. What I'm suggesting is that low liquidity is simply a euphemism for deflation. And liquidity in general, when there's adequate liquidity, it's just another word for saying we're in an inflationary period. Price is going up. Value of the dollar is going down. I don't mind parting, or you wouldn't mind parting with $100,000 to buy the property because you think the price is going to go up. And you know the purchasing power of your dollar is going down because we're in a period of inflation. Does that make any sense to you? It does. I would just qualify that by saying that I think inflation or deflation, that w what environment you're in, certainly does have an effect on the liquidity of a market. But that's only one of the factors, I think. Um, uh, so uh, I we agree look that it's one of the factors, but I'm just saying primary environment. And if it were true, if that, if that hypothesis were true, then when the federal government can't sell its bonds to anybody but the Federal Reserve, and they have low liquidity, is that evidence that we are in a period of deflation? Not, it's consistent not necessarily. With that not necessarily. I get that, but, but it's consistent I think I, with that idea, to my I, mind. I, I certainly see what you're saying. And, and uh, I, would, I would say that the, the simplest way to think about liquidity would say that, uh, that there's an, if not exact harmony, but a, a nice balance between motivated buyers and motivated sellers. That mm -hmm. there's there's some sort of relation there, and yes, one of the things that would demotivate someone from from buying would be a deflationary environment. Mm -hmm. One thing that would demotivate people from selling would be an inflationary environment. So that's one of the factors that that uh, that throws that balance off. So it's not necessarily a, a sign that you're in a deflationary environment, but it could be one of the factors that yep. that goes into that. And I think in this case, it probably is. I mean, I think. Clearly, in the commodities, uh, we are seeing a deflationary environment that has been caused by this uh, this blowing up of the the bond bubble and then the secondary bubble in the the equities markets that uh, that is now translating into this plunge in well, I mean oil, although there are a lot of factors in that, and gold and a lot of other commodities mm -hmm. are of course plunging the dollar, at this time. On the other hand, has been growing in purchasing power over the last fifteen sixteen months. It's up. 20%. It was up 25% for a while. It's still up 20% in the last 15, 16 months, if I understand correctly. That is deflation, and at least on the international level, as measured by U.S. dollar index. Um, you know, it's one of those things. Look at it. Hmm. You know, uh, it's kind of like Arsenio Hall. People are going to go, hmm, well, uh, maybe, maybe there's some point to it. Right. Uh, you've watched the Iranian deal. Uh, yeah. And the reason I call it deal is because I had an article, I have an article from the Washington Examiner, and they talk about the agreement that was reached, the preliminary agreement between the Obama administration and Iran. And they refer to it five times in a 250-word article as a deal. And not once did they refer to it as a treaty. Now, the report in the Washington Examiner, it's not, a, it's not legal, you know, it's not a legal document, but still it's odd to me that this agreement is called a deal but not a treaty, seemingly between two or more countries. It sounds like a treaty to me, but 
Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2 of the Constitution of the United States says the Senate shall provide advice and consent on treaties. Two-thirds of the Senate has to agree to ratify a treaty after it's been negotiated with the, well, the pres- by the president. And yet in the Iranian deal, we have the House of Representatives is called on to approve this agreement. The problem I have is there's no proviso in the Constitution for the House of Representatives to ratify any treaties. And why aren't we simply leaving this exclusively to the Senate to ratify or not ratify the the Iranian deal? And I'm wondering if the use of the word deal signals that they know they're not drafting a treaty. It's not ratified by the Senate. The House is in this, and there's no constitutional foundation for it. Do you have an explanation? Well, I think I might. Um, I don't believe this is technically a treaty and is not being treated as such. It is technically uh, referred to as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, JCPOA, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which is a framework, which is an agreement. And I, <laughs> I don't want to start parsing the, uh, the legality of these different terms, but I have never seen the word treaty used in, this, in, this, uh, in the context of this uh, negotiation. So I, I believe this is a different legal entity altogether and one that obviously does not require, uh, according to the, the, uh, the laws of the land, the, uh, the participation of the Senate or the, the, the ratification of the, the House. So, um, so it is a, a, a comprehensive plan of action, which I assume means that there are certain obligations uh, for the Iranians under this plan and certain obligations then uh, in response from the P5 plus one, basically America and Europe to, uh, to ease sanctions. But I think it's more in the, in, the, in the framework of an agreement rather than a treaty that is being legalized in that in that sense so i i don't know what a joint comprehensive plan of action legally is or what what purview it comes under but my understanding is that it is not a treaty well i i would agree with you since the senate is not the ratifying agency uh it can't be a treaty under the constitution but again it raises a very interesting question. If it's not a treaty and it involves foreign countries, some sort of an agreement between foreign countries, but it's not a treaty, what is it? And are we bound by it? Who is bound by an agreement that is not a treaty? Does this extend down to the people of the United, you know, the people in Texas? Are we bound by this agreement? And I'll make you a bet that the fast track, uh, legal process that they've authorized for the use of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I'll make you bet it's the same thing. The fast-track legislation is authorized by the House of Representatives. That's not a treaty. I looked it up a little bit. NAFTA was done under fast-track. It indicates there wasn't really a treaty. There were a number of different uh, agreements that the House ratified, and the Senate was not involved so far as I know. But the House can't be treaty. What are they and what are the legal effects and who's bound by them? Inquiring minds. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and and it is an important thing. And there's a, there's a long legislative history and, and judicial history behind this. And I've, uh, I've written about it in the forecaster before talking about treaties and uh, the fact that they can actually undermine constitutional uh, that's, uh, that's why this law. is so important, because yes. many of the treaties that people are concerned about, they say, oh, this treaty is undermining. Well, is it a treaty? 
<laughs> was it ratified by the Senate or was it approved by the House? If it was approved yes. by the House, it's not a treaty under the Constitution. Right. What is the well? I, I see that. I see that CNN has a post uh, on precisely this from March of this year, talking about the Iranian neg- negotiations. Uh, Iran deal, a treaty or not a treaty? That is the question. And it says it opens by saying, if it looks like a treaty, walks like a treaty, and talks like a treaty, is it a treaty? According to the White House. Only if the president of the United States says it is. And uh, so, of course, this infuriated uh, John McCain, who said this is clearly a treaty. They can call it a banana, but it's a treaty. So it sounds like legal legalized wrangling to basically make this. Again, these are strange times and strange questions, and we're going to have to leave answers to this one for another time. James, I'm glad to hear you back on the program. It's always a pleasure talking to you. James Corbett from thecorbettreport.com. C-O-R-B-E-T-T, report.com. I'm Alfred Addis. I want to thank all of you for listening. Hope you'll tune in again tomorrow. In the meantime, with good Lord bless you, me, James, and Frank, the producer. Good night. I work all night. I work all day to pay the bills I have to pay. There never seems to be a single penny left for me. Left you fast. In my dreams, I have a plan. If I got me a wealthy man, I wouldn't have to work at all. I'd fool around and have a ball. Money, money, money. American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. 
Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. have denied internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from AVR. The AVR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System.
All right, good evening all. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Steffen. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is July 22nd, 2015. It's Wednesday evening. It is about 8.08 out here on the Pacific Time Coast. That's when it is where you're at. We are, in fact, live, and that means you can participate in this show. You can call in. Toll-free, 800-932-1980. 800-932-1980. You can also go to our chat room. There's quite a few people in there right now. It's located at our website, theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. You'll see the chat link. You click on that, pick a name, pick a password, you're in there. I think you have to enter your email, too, and uh, then you're in there. Don't worry, you won't be getting spammed with email. It's just something that the room requires uh, to set you up. And, uh, I don't know, I think it might work to re uh, refine your password or something, but I don't know how to do that, so uh, uh, don't lose your password. You know, pick something easy. It's not a bank account, okay? It's just a chat room. And uh, if you do lose your password or forget your password and there's no way you can remember and there's no way I can help you, uh, just uh, pick a new name and a new password. And this time, use a password you won't forget. And if you want to instant message me, that's not a chat room. That doesn't go over the air. Nothing like that. It's just the NSA and me. See it? And uh, on Yahoo Instant Messenger, the screen name is AVRN Talk. Okay, one word. There you go. Those are the ways to contact us. Of course, uh, you can send me emails. And uh, that information is on the website. So you can get it there. It's simple, American Voice Radio at yahoo.com. Real easy. That's why I got the Yahoo uh, thing, because it's, it's pretty simple. Hard to forget. All right, it's Wednesday night, and that means we've got Melissa Roxanne on as co-host. She hosts her own show, New World Info, on Monday evenings is live, uh, replayed on Friday. If you miss it, you can pick it up on uh, Friday. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you. Feeling better? I'm alive. Well, people are wondering, you know, because you did miss your show on Monday, (laughs) after all. Yeah, I don't miss many shows very often, so... Yeah, I I got what you had, and then I got over that, and it, you know, not very long, and then I woke up last Wednesday with a sore throat, and... It's just worsened from there. The sore throat's gone, but I'm just coughing a lot and tons of congestion. And well, we've seen some people on the, in the chat room to mention that there's some kind of crud going around where they're at. And I was down at the. Uh, I was convinced that what I had was food poisoning, and yeah. it, and it may have been, but I'm not as convinced as I was. 
uh, because, I don't think it was. you know, I go downtown and, uh, you know, Melissa starts getting sick and I know, hey, you know, what food poisoning doesn't, you don't pass that on to people. Well, and, I had the exact same symptoms. As yeah, and then, and then the lady at the checkout at a store had exactly the same yeah, symptoms, except too. Except I didn't vomit. You did. But, yeah. Um, but we both had really bad and she said, oh, yeah, you know, th- now this is somebody who, you know, is checking out people at the store. And so she talks to a lot of people and said, hey, yeah, there's a bug going on. So I don't know. I looked like, it this up is a and uh, what I saw from the symptoms was called Novovirus, I believe, or something like that. And it's what cruise sh- people in cruise ships get, too. Ah, uh, the it's cruise. The same sh- symptoms. The cruise ship Earth. Anyway, um, it's a virus. So, but my thing is the reason why I believe we both got sick. Well, for me, I know I got lazy and wasn't taking stuff like I should have. If I had been, then that probably would have never happened. And well, and that could be because I was, uh, I, I I hadn't stopped taking things, but I had become spotty about it. You just stopped, and and. Me, anyway, I got, hey, um, you know, I take some one day and then not another day. Yeah, and the then charcoal, the activated charcoal seemed to help me to get over the diarrhea. And I was sore all over, achy, just felt terrible and had diarrhea like crazy for I don't know how long. But you know, while, I'm also wondering, days. you know, because I really don't know what uh, what radiation poisoning is really like. You know, I, I mean, I, I, I'm not an expert at that. I mean, uh, but I don't know. I, I think from what I remember, you know, diarrhea and uh, projectile vomiting. Yeah, so and, why uh, wouldn't all we that. continue to have it? I mean, unless it's from the activated charcoal. I don't know. It could have been a charcoal. Could have been a could have been a plume of radiation. You know, that just know. you know, or I, it could I have be no something idea. in the chemtrails that's causing me to have this coughing and congestion and. All that kind of stuff. But anyway, I am feeling a lot better. It's just mainly the coughing and congestion now. And I've been doing a lot of... I did activate a charcoal a lot, and then I switched to garlic a lot, and then now I'm starting to do vitamin C, which I wish I'd have just done in the beginning. So I'm um, hoping that I can get over this mess. Huh. But, but the other stuff was terrible, too, so I'm grateful to <laughs> be over that. Well, I'm glad to be feeling better all the way around. And so. I was all ready for everything. Then I get down here and realize my keyboard is up at the house, so you need to go and let me run and get it. <laughs> you want me to just sit here all night without uh, being able to get to anything? No, I'll pull your fader down and, uh, I'll be right you know. Back. I've got plenty to talk about. Uh, let's see here. All right. Well, let's, let's, let's talk about Trump. You know, because... Uh, those of you that listened uh, just uh, the prior to this show, you know, Al- Alfred Adas doing financial survival on Wednesday nights that is actually being recorded for Thursday. Uh, but uh, one thing, if you were listening to the first 20 minutes, that's that's the only time you'll ever hear that 20 minutes. Yeah, I have it recorded, but I don't replay it uh, because it doesn't really fit in any time spot because what happens is uh, Melody comes on and does 20 minutes tomorrow, and then we play the interview with James Corbett. So if you heard Al, uh, that is the only time you'll hear it. And he was talking about Trump, and he's a little more, uh, Al is a little more, uh, I think, uh, 
uh, enthusiastic or positive or uh, yeah, positive, I guess, about Trump's candidacy than I am. Although I have to agree with him that you know I really do enjoy Trump's personality in this context. Usually I think he's a jerk, okay? But in this context, dealing with the dirtbags in Washington, D.C., and the dirtbags in the mainstream media, I, you know what? I, I like seeing a jerk when it comes to dealing with them. You know, it's like hiring an attorney. You go and go, well, where's the nastiest, meanest, rottenest attorney out there? I want him on my side. Okay, you know, I don't want, I might not like him, but I certainly don't, I I want him on my side rather than not on my side. And I I guess I feel the same way about Trump. You know, I've always got this underlying idea, though, that, you know, he could just be lying, he could be a phony, he could be a fake. But then again, when a guy like Rupert Murdoch calls him a phony, I got to think, well, Rupert Murdoch is a known liar and a thief. So, uh, you know... I'm not going to believe anything he says, and if he calls somebody a phony, he's probably not a phony. Rupert Rupert Murdoch shouldn't even be in this country, okay? I don't care what you think about Fox News. Rupert Murdoch, with his Chinese spy wife, should never have been allowed in this country, okay? Now, in an interview with CNN, it's Anderson Cooper, you know, the homosexual on CNN... That was broadcast tonight. Republican candidate for President Donald Trump berated the reporter for continuing to address polls that shed him in a negative light instead of the polls showing his upper tier status. Upper tier status? Like, uh, oh, I'm like 20 points ahead of everybody else? That's not upper tier. That's I'm leading the pack, you little homo. You. You know, and this is just the kind of crap that mainstream media gets away with with most people. He says, Trump says, I am leading across the board, Trump said in the interview. And then you hit me with this poll that I didn't see before, which, oh, gee, it's not even the kind of a poll. All I know is I have a very big group of support. And I think one of the reasons, let me tell you, the people don't trust you. And the people don't trust the media. And I understand why. You know, okay, he's a jerk. He's a New Yorker. He's a billionaire. He could be, uh, uh, you know, just faking it. But I got to say, man, anybody who gets on the mainstream media and says, let me tell you, the people don't trust you and the people don't trust the media. And I understand why on national TV. You know, I got to stand up and give a guy like that a standing ovation because it's true. People don't trust him. People do know they're liars. And they're so obvious liars. I mean, here's a guy leading in all, every poll out there, and this little homosexual gets up there and says, Oh, look, uh, this, this poll shows you in a negative light. Trump also said the American dream is dead. But he will revive it and make it bigger, better, and stronger than ever before. Well, you see, do I believe that? Yeah, I believe the American dream is dead. Do I think Donald Trump's going to revive it? No. And here's why. It's not because I think 
oh, well, Donald Trump can't do it. Donald Trump doesn't want to do it. Donald Trump's just saying that. No, I don't think any one man can get into the White House and, and revive the American dream. Okay? Do you realize what would be involved in reviving the American dream? Okay, first off, they would have to fire every public school teacher out there and start from scratch. Yeah. They would have to tear up every international treaty, or whatever the heck it is, NAFTA, the World Trade Organization, and say, we're not doing that anymore. They would have to say, oh, and another thing what we're doing, you want to sell your crap in our market? We've got tariffs now. And you can go squealing any organization you want, but it ain't going to help because either you pay the tariff or go sell your crap somewhere else. And that's just the start of it. Then you've got to abolish the 501c3. Then you've got to make abortion illegal. Then you've got to get rid of all these protected classes. And that includes the homosexuals. Nation of laws, everybody's equal under the law. No protected classes, okay? No titles of nobility, because that's what that is. You know, that's a pretty tall order. And, I, you know, and I'm just doing this off the top of my head. What else? Oh, yeah, get rid of the Department of Homeland Security also while you're at it. Shut down the NSA. Wow, this is getting to be large. I, I think somewhere in this whole plan is an assassination team from the same creeps that, you know, shot at Reagan and killed Kennedy. He goes on, you know, I'll tell, you, I'll tell the story, the American dream. I talk about the American dream in speeches. Trump said, the American dream is dead, but I'm going to make it bigger, better, stronger than ever before. The American dream is dead, but I'm going to make it bigger, stronger. Right, and I go, boom. And I do it with great bravado, and the audiences go crazy. Well, that's true. You know, I mean, it's, it's true because uh, people are not used to a guy like this. Do you realize how starved the general American public is for the truth? I mean, well, hey, what about you? You're listening to American Voice Radio Network. I mean, why are you doing that? I mean, can't you get this kind of can't you get this kind of commentary, this kind of information on CNN? Can't you get it there? And oh, you get to look at some pretty prostitutes on there too. Gee, no, it's because you can't get it there. They don't tell the truth. They never tell the truth anymore. And Trump's pointing it out now. Whatever his, maybe he has another agenda. And and I don't blame people, you know, for saying, uh, you know, uh, things like, well, he's control opposition. Somebody said he's a safety valve. You know, he's a distraction. He's a this, he's a that. And they could be right. 
And I don't blame them. I don't blame them for presenting that as a, as a possibility, because it is a possibility. But you know what? It's the same thing I said about Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan had, he, he, put, he gave some great speeches. Okay? I liked his rhetoric. All right? Now, his record doesn't pan out to be anything like his speeches. You know, and Trump doesn't have any political record that we can point to and say, hey, you didn't do any of these things you said you were going to do. But I'll tell you what, his opponents do. And man, oh man, I, I, will, I share one thing with Al, and I am going to watch the debates, the Republican debates with Trump in them this time. I want to see that. I want to see if they give this guy a chance to talk. Because if you'll remember back with Ron Paul now, you want to talk about control opposition? You want to talk about somebody with good rhetoric who is disingenuous about his intentions? I'll talk about Ron Paul. Because I can point to that and say, hey, he didn't do anything he said he would do. And he didn't do anything for 30 years either. But, did I like his rhetoric? Do I think, you know, his education on the Federal Reserve System has some value? Sure. But not as a, not as a politician, not as a representative. You should go out and run seminars across the country. Teach people about this. And teach people what to do about it. All right, I think we have Melissa back. Who was keyboardless? Yes, from Backjack. With a brand new keyboard lack? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. One of mine's gone missing, but I thank God I found one in the house. <laughs> yeah, I've lost my yeah, mind the, and my keyboard. The missing keyboards, you know, they just yeah, it's a long story, go. but nobody cares. So nah, I'm gonna go into it. I know I don't. <laughs> yeah, I I don't like Trump. And I know you know that, and I know you don't care, and uh, I do think he's a total... Just another thing I don't Illuminati care about. Illuminati pawn, and everything he says is okayed by them. He's told what he can say and all that, what he can't say. And he's just a little relief valve, like Ron Paul, Jesse Ventura, AJ, and all the others that say all the right things, and, you know, everybody cheers. You know, that's all it is. And I don't, I don't think he'll ever become anything, president or anything like that. I mean, he does this every time. Every race. You what know, are you talking about? Every political. When was the last time Donald Trump ran for Donald president? Donald Trump always is out there spouting off and getting, you know, making all these comments and, and getting everybody's attention and stuff. And he is a distraction. Well, He's never we'll going to really be president. Well, we'll see. You know, you can have your opinion, and your opinion, by the way, is jaded. You Just say like that Juliana about Assange, everything. You believe dude, every crackpot story. No job that's no You know, that's the thing. Just a bunch of poems of the You you believe show. every crackpot story out there no, about the end of the world. No. Yeah, no. you do. Oh, September. We'll Tell us about that. We'll see about September. Yeah, we'll see about Donald Trump too. Yeah, we will. So wait and see in September what happens. 
No, we will, you know, and, and that'll be that. We and I'm will hoping see. it doesn't, but all signs seem to point to it as so. All signs on YouTube? <laughs> no, not just YouTube. Yeah, there's no it's signs. Not just YouTube. There's no signs. There's okay. just YouTube. Let's see. Signs in the skies and the heaven, all the blood moons last year and this year. Hello. That alone, Frank. Oh. You're just ignoring. Mm hmm. Well, blood, you know moons what? Have the ultimate blood moons have happened before. Blood moons have happened before, and the world didn't end. But then again, we didn't have YouTube back then. So. Okay, well. Anyway, um, so. You're just bitter. You know what? You're just bitter, and I know why you're bitter. You're <laughs> bitter because you bought into the Ron Paul thing, and he no. turned out to be a phony baloney, and now you're bitter about no. politics. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. no. I've never voted in my life for any presidential campaign, and I never will. And they're all evil anyway, and they're all controlled, and nothing's going to change. It's just a different puppet that they install. They install them. It doesn't even matter how anybody votes. But even, let's say it did matter, I still wouldn't vote because it's voting for evil. It's voting for Satan on one side and Lucifer on the other. That's what you're doing. So, I don't agree with that. Well, you know, the uh, you know, there's certainly and I believe monkey business going on with the voting. They're doing a lot of evil things and I don't want to be associated with them. So. Well, there is certainly monkey business in the voting and uh that that is a huge problem and yeah, you know, that could stop any candidate even if they were honest, honest all the way through and trying to do the right thing and everything else. They get up there, even if they had a billion dollars, they get up there and, hey, somebody pulls the levers and uh, you lose. Even if everybody in the country voted for you, you There's lose. There's no way they would allow <laughs> anybody honest to get in. And if they did, they soon assassinate them, you know, and or threaten to do so. Well, and That's that, why that, they turn every one of them and make them even more evil if they're not already. Well, and that right there is a, is another possibility that you know i'm not going to say that that's not they, that they're not not only not capable but they haven't done it already several times to you know candidates and you know so yeah, yeah. but i'm just saying Many you know times. i'm just saying i like i like what i'm hearing and i like it that he's calling that little faggot on tv out and saying nobody trusts you and i know why kennedy you know Reagan. anyway so i i presume Yes, but we got to take a break. Oh, are you running the show now? What are you? you you're <laughs> well, the producer now? Well, we can just skip the break right? and is pretend right? like it's you and Al. <laughs> we that, can just skip all that, the breaks. Is that what we're doing? We can be me. I can be Al. And you can be Frank. And we can skip the break. No, we're taking a break. We'll, okay. be back. we'll be back in just a bit, and Melissa can get her stuff together. We'll be back. <laughs> Things I say, 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 things I say
vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. have denied internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from AVR. The AVR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149. $49.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? 
Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, and Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Steffen. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is the 22nd of July. It's about 8.38 and a half out here on the Pacific Time Coast. It's Wednesday, if that's all true where you're at. We are, in fact, live. You can participate in the show by calling in 800-932-1980. You can also go to the chat room. It's located at our website, theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. And let's see, uh, you can also instant message me on Yahoo Instant Messenger. ABRN Talk is the screen name. 
All right, it's Wednesday night. That means we got Melissa Roxanne on as co-host. Welcome back, Melissa. Thank you. Did you get your stuff together? I've been ready. I had it ready before the break. I was just trying to take a break in a timely manner. Uh-huh. Okay, well then, let's not waste any more so, time. Uh, who won? Oh. We did. Yeah, Both the the songs. Room Got the Yardbirds was the first song, which was kind of, uh, as they like to say in the chat room, a ground ball. But I like that song, so I played it. Second one I have played before. And, yeah, and, yeah, excuses, excuses. And I have won with this, but apparently not every brain cell in the chat room is dead, and they have memory cells left, and they got it. Yeah. Well, no, actually, they didn't get it. You know what? Uh, the band was not Groby Mape. I said Moby Grape. And it was not Groby Mape. What about Moby Grape? Okay, that's the one, but I don't see your guess anywhere. Well, mine was in there. Yours must be erased. <laughs> no, it isn't. I don't think you're allowed I'll to play. I'll show you. I don't think you're allowed to play, you know? Melissa Roxanne, Moby Grape. Ha, 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 got it. We win. I know this. I don't think you're allowed so to. I don't you think you're allowed to uh, even guess. You're being blind like you never listen and you never see anything. Hosts and, and employees of AVR oh, are not. Stop trying to change the rules after all these years. Are not subject to uh, the. Uh, I didn't the contest. cheat. You never tell me ahead what the song is. All are. right, all right, all right. So the room got it. All right. Now. Okay. Is it my turn finally? If you have anything worthwhile to say, <laughs> yeah. If I can ever get a word in, and of course, was, of course, maybe I will say something. I am the arbitrator of that, so right. be careful. Bastrop. What? Tejas. Bastrop is the city. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. The conspiracy theories grew wilder as the massive military exercise grew closer. Food riots and martial law were coming to the United States, some said. Dissidents would be assassinated. Walmarts turned into prison camps. Foreign troops brought in to help. Then the governor of Texas... Stop laughing, Frank. The governor of Texas lent credence to the paranoia. You could tell this is a mainstream article by ordering the state's National Guard to monitor a weeks-long special operations training exercise called Jade Helm 15, involving 1,200 troops and seven states, so they claim. Some people reportedly buried their guns so government troops couldn't take them away. Others stockpiled ammunition and supplies. Hmm... Hold on one second. I'm having a problem here. Hey, you should believe the mainstream media. They don't like Trump either. They agree with you. Yeah, and they didn't like Ron Paul either. They all pretended to hate Ron Paul, including the other politicians. It was just a big dog and pony show game. I don't know. They so liked him they a lot better. They could make him look legit. <laughs> they like him a lot better. Them. They like him a lot better than they did. They do Trump. He's one of them anyway, all the way. Just keep keep on I'm your trying to. your paranoia I a, story. <laughs> I have a problem. I have like a a little problem that it won't let me for a second. I've got a not responding thing. Um, anyway, yeah, this article just talks all about all the stuff and makes us all look like a bunch of whacked out, crazy, nutcase, paranoid conspiracy theorists, as usual. And then 
they plug a certain, I think, radio show and website, and it's not AJ this time, believe it or not, but I don't trust the one that they plug. I don't know a thing about them. I haven't looked them up or anything or ever heard of them, but to me, why, you know what I'm saying? Why would they be plugging something or or dissing them, but yet plugging them at the same time? I don't know. What's their they name? Do that. That's how they work. I, I don't know. If I could get to it, I'd tell you. Oh. I have to get to it, but I can't do a thing right this second. I thought you said your stuff was together. It's together, but now I have <laughs> You seem like you, your together has fallen problems. apart here. I, you know. Anyway, this happens at times. You have problems, too. I hear you having problems on the air. Anyway, not every time I'm on the air. You know what? No. I don't have them every time either. So, a group called Counter Jade Helm helped organize quasi militias to keep track of troop movements. Think that's like a controlled op thing? The who? Counter Jade Helm. They call it quasi militias to help keep track of troop movements. For Jade Helm. What's a quasi-militia? I don't know, but that's what they're calling it. They call it quasi-militias. There's just apparently a bunch of them. Okay. Jade Are they Helm, related to quasi-motos? <laughs> Jade Helm began last week, not with the bang, but a whimper. Bastrop, Texas, the scene of a rowdy public meeting where people held up signs declaring, No Gestapo in Bestrapo and wore T-shirts with the words, Come and take it, under a drawing of an automatic rifle. With eerily calm on the third day of the exercise, nobody seemed to have seen any of the troops or out-of-town conspiracy theorists who vowed to watch their every move. We haven't gotten a single call, said Steve Adcock, chief of police in a town of about 7,000. We thought that there might be something, but nothing's occurred. Local officials and some residents resent the attention the protests have drawn. Bastrop is just a few miles from Camp Swift, a National Guard storage and training facility. People who live here are strong supporters of the military, Adcock said. He didn't recognize any of the people who angrily challenged an army colonel at April's rowdy public meeting. A lot of the conspiracy stuff is not local people, Adcock told AFP. It's making us look really bad. Kay Rogers, a Bastrop lawyer, said a small minority of local citizens supported the protest. If you talk to 10 people about it, only one of them will even raise an eyebrow, she said. We have a bunch of fringe elements in the county, and they squawk pretty loud. And then it says re-education camps. But while the wildest theories, like how the government is building re-education camps for Christians, libertarians, and other enemies of the state, may seem outlandish, the underlying fear is widespread. Some 60% of Americans see the government as a threat to individual liberty, according to a poll conducted by Rasmussen in May. Two-thirds of respondents said they were concerned the government will use military training operations to impose greater control over the states. Yet, oddly, only 16% opposed having these exercises in their state. The Army spent months trying to reassure people that the public would experience little disruption to their normal lives aside from a slight increase in vehicle traffic and the limited use of military aircraft and its associated noise. 
Lieutenant Colonel Mark Lestoria got visibly flustered after the lengthy, lengthy Bastrop meeting erupted in applause when he was called a liar. It is not a preparation for martial law, he said with a sigh audible on a video of the meeting. Some people really, truly want to make this something it's not. All we want to do is make sure our guys are trained for combat overseas. Yet that dude that I played on my show that, you know, was talking about Jade Helm and supposed to be one of these officials that know everything, he said that it's not really true, that it's not about training for, you know, exercises overseas. No, they said what it was for. They want to infiltrate the the, the civilian population. Yeah. And if they were training for overseas, what good is training to infiltrate English-speaking populations if you're going to be operating in non-English speaking places. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't make thing. any sense. They are he is a liar. But yeah. then again, the thing is, liars. now listen, the military is is really good at compartmentalizing. He might have been fed a line of crap and and here it is. This is what we're doing. This is the game. Go out and sell it. He may not know the truth. Okay? Just because you're a, some colonel and you're a spokesman, you're a paper pusher. You don't get all the information. You don't get all the truth. They don't put you in the no, loop necessarily. He may not know the truth. I think maybe he kind of let some cat out of the bag he shouldn't have or something when he said it's not really for training, you know, for overseas operations. So, anyway, so then it goes on to say something else. Some people... Uh, okay, let's see. Efforts to create a realistic exercise by having some troops conduct suspicious activity while dressed as civilians? You mean like the sovereign citizens that are out there saying, we're a sovereign citizen and we don't, you know, re- we don't recognize your jurisdiction, right? Mm. While they're really hostile towards them and everything. Um, that's what they're talking about, stuff like that. And a map that labeled Texas and Utah as hostile territory. You know, and also and, uh, what about, California. wait a minute, what about the other thing? You know that other thing, the intent of the founding fathers? They never intended us to have a standing army. So the whole United States Army, you know, I don't care what you're doing, for what reason you're doing it, you are not supposed to exist. Okay? Are we at no war? You know what? We don't have any declared Either. war. No. And until we do, we don't need an army, do we? Oh, except for the war on drugs and the war on conspiracy theories. Yeah, but that's not declared. Stuff like that. That's not a declared the war. war on Christians. You know, the fact is these guys play fast and loose with the law, and they do whatever they want, and then they get out there and say, well, you know, we're just training our guys. Well, your guys shouldn't even be in the Army. We shouldn't even have a standing Army. We don't need a standing Army. Because you know what? We've got an Air Force, we've got a Navy, and we have Marines. And they're plenty suitable to hold off any attacking Army or any attacking anybody until we can get an Army together. You know, and we could get a 20 million man army together within three months. What, that's not big enough? That's not fast enough? I think it is. And, you know, if it isn't, then what do we need 20 aircraft carriers for? Yeah, so then they're saying, you know, all that sovereign citizen stuff, you know, 
role-playing, all that. And then the map of Jade Helm, where they said some places are hostile and all that. Uh, all that played into the fears of people convinced the government is out to get them. This is by far the greatest public conditioning exercise in American history. And here, here we go with the dropping of the name and the website and all. Gary Franchi of the Online Next News Network ominously warned his viewers. So viewers, so I don't know, maybe it's something video. But uh, it says here, U.S. military coordinating with local law enforcement and elements of the willing public will be, this is his quote, conducting clandestine activities, carrying weapons under aircraft cover at night, wearing armed bands with a special insignia. Martial law may not happen this summer, Franchi intoned, but when the times come, troops will be ready and trained to take over your town. It sounds like to me he's just their mouthpiece, you know, like set oh, by yeah. and, you know, the hey, thing. Well, yeah. they got to have somebody real. out there they can point to that isn't for real, just like, you know, Hal, whatever but his yet, name was. But yeah, he's saying you know. the truth. As far as, yeah, they are training for martial law and to take uh, over our towns. You know, and and he's the thing is, you know what? None of us. The the fact is, none of us know what the truth is in this matter. And the fact is, I know what a fact is, though. The fact is, they don't have the resources to take over everybody's town. They don't even have the resources to take over everybody's state. Now, yeah, they could go into places and they can make a big show of it in in certain places. But now you got to remember, this is the the full military force of the United States could not subdue Iraq. All right, we still don't have that place squared away. Afghanistan's even worse. Okay, and these places aren't all that big. They don't have the resources. They don't have the manpower. They can't get it done. And they're going to find themselves surrounded and in big trouble if they try. Because, I mean, sure, okay, it's, let's look at Iraq. Let's look at Afghanistan. What happened? Oh, we go rolling in like the, uh, well, kind of like the Nazis, right? They called it Blitzkrieg, right? That was a big surprise. Yeah. Everybody said, holy smokes, look at these guys go, man. They're dive-bombing us. They got tanks rolling across here. Woo, wow, man, this is something. We call it shock and awe. But you know what? That only goes so far. That's like, okay, bang, zoom, there you go. Now what are you going to do? <laughs> oh, now you're going to wait to get your head blown off. Now you're going to wait to get blown up on the side of the road. This is why we got 6,000 dead soldiers. Okay? They didn't die in the shock and awe. They died in the afterwards. That, by the way. I what? I wasn't laughing about you know them getting killed. I was laughing about something in the chat room. The the thing is, see, we don't know the truth what they're planning because they they, they you think they don't know they they can't well you think they're gonna occupy the United States they can't even occupy Iraq they can't even occupy Afghanistan well it doesn't mean they're necessarily gonna be using our guys you know ah, okay who are they gonna use let's see are Russia they gonna oh, oh oh boy now there's a really Mexico, good idea. Hey, yeah, guess what? Guess what? Guess what? That's a real good idea because, you know, there's some people out there that might feel funny about shooting an American soldier, but there's nobody. The UN troops. There's nobody. Listen, there's nobody going to feel funny about shooting MS-13 or UN troops. 
You want to unite the American public into a pissed-off shooting war? North Korean oh, yeah, troops. yeah, bring them, too. That's really going to make... Uh, yeah, you, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to occupy and subdue the American people, or are you trying to piss them off and start a war? Because that's what you'll do if you bring anybody but American troops. You want to well, you want to you want to unify the streets as high as the horse's bridle too. I mean if well hey you know what that could be from all the beheadings. You want to be Muslims? It could be you know whoever doing it to Christians. Well whoever hey you know what to... you want to bring UN troops here? You might see blood up to the bridle of a horse because you want to unite the American people. A hundred million gun owners that'd do it. But. A lot of them are going to say, man, I can't, I can't shoot American soldiers. You know, he's got that, I can't shoot American, you know, this could be my kid, this could be my kid's friend. I can't shoot American soldiers, just like a bunch of American soldiers are going to say, man, I can't start shooting these people down well, in the I street. I agree, I've seen video of just that, Marines, you know, that are members of Oath Keepers saying exactly that, young guys, you know, Saying, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to turn on our own people. You know, we're going to follow what the Constitution says. We're not well, going to go against it. And that goes both ways. You know, the American people don't want to start shooting American soldiers either. Right. But you start bringing, you start bringing the gangs up here. You start bringing, you say, go ahead, bring some blue hats up here and see what happens. You want to unite the American people? See, they've got a real problem. Their system is falling apart, and I'm telling you what well, what it, everybody ought to worry have, about. It could be that they do, a, you know, it could be some big disaster that happens, and then that's when I think well, we're going to be invaded right there. I I don't think we're and getting invaded. And they can invaded, cause a big disaster, you know. The thing I'm not is, saying they're gonna, but I think they've got a big problem. Their whole house of cards is falling apart, and they're not sure what to do. And the only thing they can do is crash it. You know, and try to try to just, uh, what is that called? I think they're trying to avoid, you know, the jig is up about the economy. So they're going to create some kind of big tragedy to happen. You know, it's going to be some nukes. It's going to be, it could be that they nuke Yellowstone. <laughs> you know, it, I mean, that could kill us all. I don't know. Yeah, but, that, that's a good plan. Yeah, that's or, about as good as bringing the U.S. You know, well, you know and hey. that's probably what happened with Fukushima. They nuked it. That's what happened with Fukushima, I believe. Well, you know what? I, it, it, hey, and, I, I don't usually do this, but I'll tell you, you know, if the government's plan is to nuke California on the San Andreas, I'm going to have to support that. I'm going to have to support that, that plan. But, uh, uh, you know, you I know, usually don't support the government. And, and but then there's that the whole plan. climate change chaos that's supposed to start in September. The Pope's coming on and on again. Well, goes, no, and somebody know? in the chat room says it's the cops. It will be the cops that we'll need to worry about. And that would take. Hey, we need to worry about the cops now. I don't know. Look. But look at the whole thing in Ferguson and in Baltimore. You know, it seems like they're wanting to make local cops look bad. With the, I mean, they're always shooting, you know, people that are innocent and chasing them and killing them and all this stuff. So it seems like, you know, it's going to, it's like trying to turn them against so they can bring in other, you know, whoever. Well, they've been in, in Baltimore and Ferguson. The talk was to federalize the police forces. That's what I mean, federalize, forces. yeah. You um, know, and, and it's definitely a plan. I think those were both operations to do just that. I think they're a false flag. Well, if somebody could figure it out as to, okay, why did you pick Ferguson, which is like basically St. Louis, and why did you pick Baltimore, 
you know, and, and why are you picking these particular areas to talk about federalizing the police? I mean, there's got to be a reason. They have a reason for picking places where they want to do things because the fact remains they can't do it everywhere all the time. They don't have the resources. Maybe it's so the blacks can say, you know, they hate us. It's about the whites against the blacks, and they're trying to, to you know, whiteies well, against us blacks. The one blah, they, blah, the blah. main, the, look. This is what and my then it po- creates a racial divide. Listen, this bigger. was what my point was when you were saying the UN, MS-13, or whatever else, is that the one thing that they are terrified of, that the American people unify and recognize who the real enemy is. See, they don't want I that. I they don't want they that want under no circumstances. They want to divide and conquer at all times to keep us fighting amongst each other instead of realizing we need to be fighting those, you know, us. <laughs> yeah, them, you know what. Yeah, anyway. pick a word. There's so many. do you want to do a second hour? Yeah, at least. Oh, at least. Huh? I've well, got you such know. good stuff to talk okay, about. Okay, well, I wish you would have at least tipped us off to some of it. Hey. Maybe one thing. But anyway, we'll see what kind of good stuff you have in the second uh, hour. And uh, so everybody stay tuned if you can, and we'll be back in uh, just a few minutes uh, for a second hour. heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific.
Food prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from AVR. The AVR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $140. $49.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System.
All right, we're back. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It's July 22nd, 2015. It's Wednesday. It's about nine and a half minutes past nine, which means this is the second hour. So it's a bonus hour for Wednesday night, which means you can still call in if we're live at 800-932-1980. You can still go to the chat room. Located at TheAmericanVoice.com or AmericanVoiceRadio.com. Look for the chat link. Anyhow, uh, Yahoo Instant Messenger. The screen name is AVRN Talk. And uh, being Wednesday night, Melissa Roxanne is with us as co-host. Welcome back, Melissa. Thank you. Just read in the chat room, you're CIA, huh? <laughs> Yeah, that's right. I always knew it. I know. You're always accusing me of that. Well, could be NSA, but I I don't <laughs> think so. No, I'm not affiliated with either. Mm. Or any other of those bad word organizations. Well, let's hope not, because you ought to be getting a paycheck if you were, huh? Yeah, I should be really rich by now. Anyway, um, yeah, so that whole divide and conquer thing, funny that, you know... We're talking about that because on my screen I have white millennials explain what it means to be white in America, and you should listen. We've never had to internalize what white people have done in here in America, and this. You talking about millennials, as in these punk twenty-year-olds running around? I don't know. Whatever. Probably. Like, who gives a damn what they have to say anyway? No, really. Um, I I have questions. Okay, but this is the propaganda machine on TV, on MTV. Okay, they have this new show. Okay, well, I'm not surprised. They have this new show demonizing white people, of course, and talking about white pride and prejudice and all this stuff. And it's this new documentary called White People which uh, is going to air on MTV July 22nd, which is today. Hey, so this Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, um, he takes this so-called simple approach, ask white people to think of themselves as such and acknowledge the historical implications that accompany their identity. Um, So... You know, it's all about them saying the N-word and in the article, and um, they're talking about how... You mean nigger? Well, Is they, that they the N-word? Well, they spell the N-E-G-E-R, N-E-G-E-R, yeah. Oh, well, you must be a black guy with the education level like it that. It says, in 1955, James Baldwin traveled to Lukerbads or Bod, whatever, Switzerland, a tiny village nestled in the heart of the Alps. The inhabitants who had not encountered too many black people marveled and often gaped at his dark skin and gloriously kinky hair. Children innocently innocently shouted those words when they laid eyes on Baldwin, who quickly realized his status as a stranger. The trip provoked a reflection on the ability of race to reveal as much about white people as about the black other. Uh, What one's imagination makes of other people is dictated, of course, by the master race laws of one's own personality. And it's one of the ironies of black-white relations that by means of what the white man imagines the black man to be, the black man is unable to know who the white man is, Baldwin wrote in his essay, Stranger in the Village. Sixty years after Baldwin's voyage, Jose Antonio Vargas 
is taking Baldwin's efforts one step further by turning the spotlight on the white people to gauge how whiteness factors into America's racial dynamic. So he came out with this documentary, White People, that aired today, or going to air today, whatever, on MTV. And they're out there to brainwash the, the young kids, whatever, uh, you know, 20-somethings, the teenagers, about how they should, you know, feel guilty about being white and how white people get everything and, and blacks and Latinos and Asians and Native Americans and all of those are just treated horribly and, and whites just are all rich and we all have it wonderful. We never have any problems and, and police leave us alone and, mm. you know, all those things. Whites have what they have because they worked for it. Blacks and Latinos don't have what whites have because they don't have the skill set, they don't have the education, and they don't have the jobs. And tell me, how come there's white poor people in the world? Why is that? If, if they're, well, if because they, there's white people that don't want to work either. They there's white people that, that didn't get it. There's white people that didn't get an education. There's white people that have no skill set, so they can't get a job so to do they anything. Have guilt you know? about being white. What? It seems like their story kind of. You know, doesn't add up because should those people have guilt about being white? No. Because I guess they're okay because they're poor, huh? That's what it seems like they're saying. But anyway, yeah, this whole article is just sickening, and and it's just if you want to read it, it's called "White Millennials Explain What It Means to Be White in America," and you should listen. And it's Huffington Post garbage, you know, calling garbage, promoting of sodomites and all this, you know, white white pride, like we're all a bunch of you know, KKK members or something, and and they always talk about white privilege, white privilege, you know, and so, you know, this whole thing is just sick, and and they well, want to just they want to keep us you know, against each other like we're talking about, so we we won't focus on the real enemy, you know, we focus on each other. Well, and this whole idea of white privilege. Even if there was such a thing, it's, it's not true because it's not a privilege. Okay? White people that are rich, that are successful, that are educated, they have exercised their right to do the best they can with what they have and succeed as well as they can. That's not a privilege. Sitting around on your fat ass collecting a welfare check, smoking crack and watching Oprah is a privilege. So if anybody has any privilege, it's the welfare slugs. True. You know, I mean that. And this yeah. same guy, this Vargas guy, this Hispanic guy, he also traveled and filmed this thing called Documented, a documentary about immigration. And his conversations in that always shifted back to whiteness, he said. It always ended up in this very anxious place where the combination of demographic shifts and the fact that whites are becoming an emerging racial minority, that's where the conversation always turned, he said. And it was always interesting to me. And they're always at, love to point out how, you know, they're breeding like rabbits. Well, great. We you know what? Kids, when we become... We're when, gonna die out. Well, when we become a minority then we can start getting all the privileges. Then we can start getting all the welfare. We can start getting affirmative action. We can start getting jobs we don't deserve, we're not qualified for, and we don't have the education for. Maybe we can start getting into college ahead of everybody else once we become a minority. Yeah. This might not be a bad thing. And, and I'm not a big, you know, one of these white power types at all. 
But I just get so sick of this, you know, stuff that they put out in the media, and they want to pit us against each other. Well, and the president, usurper, is always out there doing that exact thing. He well, because it, more. All right. The reason why? Because that's basis. that's who he is. It's who he's always been. I know. It is what community organizers. Now that's a euphemism, okay? Community organizer. Ominous. What it means is you are an antagonist. Yeah. Okay, you go into communities that don't Play have race card. that don't have a lot of problems, and you start creating you problems. You make them hate Whitey. That's what it's all about. Well, it does. You know, community organizers. I mean, that's the way it goes with him. But I mean, you can go in any neighborhood, and the goal is whoever is living in that neighborhood. If it's Catholic and Jews, Catholics and Protestants, and they're all white, you got to turn them against each other because of their religion. If it's something else, hey, it's because of your race. And that not is to because mention, of your think about how many he's turned against Christians. You know, he's always talking about Bible, Bible. Well, this is, and, and it's really, it's really simple. Okay, it's really simple. Why Obama is so hostile towards Christianity is because, well, maybe, but his his. Corporal goal is because at one time there was a huge black Christian population. Now, what Obama's trying to do is associate Christianity with white folks so he can turn blacks Muslim. Yeah, when he went to that AME church in Charleston where they had the late, one of the latest. Oh, yeah, he's all flags. of a sudden Reverend uh, all Liar of a then. All of a sudden he is the biggest church member, uh, religious fanatic ever. You know, because he had to be like those pretend people, a bunch of actors, I believe. You know, or maybe the real church members, whatever. But the ones that got shot, that didn't really get shot, shot. You know, a bunch of actors were playing their family members that are getting all this money. And he had, he went there and he was the biggest hypocrite liar. No, I mean, no, no, no. No, 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 no. He just tro- joined the crowd of all the yeah, other no, actors. He blends in, he, but he just blends in wherever he goes. You know, whatever crowd he's in front of, he pretends to be one of them. Well, yeah, he fit in with all the other actors. Because that's all he is, I is an actor. They called him Reverend Obama. Yeah, he's not a real reverend, but he plays one on TV. <laughs> yeah. You and know, yet, so. the church he really went to for 20 years, which was Oprah's church, which was Trinity United Church of Christ, that church has scholarships for transgenders to well, be preachers. Now, and you, you said something that, you know, is, you know, well, you know, I'm, I'm not a white power well, I never viewed myself as a white power person Well, I don't either. want people to think that, you know. But the thing is, I don't give a damn what people think. We're getting to a point where, you know what, if you're white, you're going to have to start standing up for that. And you're going to have to say, you know what, I am white and screw you. But you know what, I don't like it that every other race can be totally racist against whites and hate whites and try to help each other because of their skin color. Well, and I've seen it day after day. Sure. And on here, jobs. Well, here's the thing, though. I've worked with people like that. They've gotten promoted. They've gotten on lists that they shouldn't have gotten on at housing authorities for Section 8 and on and on and on because they were Hispanic or whatever, you know. And I'm not saying I didn't well, get promoted. Look, I did, here's the thing is that... I don't like the idea that we're being baited. Now, we call it race baiting. We can call it religion baiting. We can call it whatever, but we're being baited. No different than the fish going down the river seeing free food floating along. It's a bad idea, and I don't like being baited. 
And that's what they're doing. And But, you know, the bottom line... They're stirring the pot. The bottom line is, I can sit here all day and say, look, we're being baited, we're being fooled, we're being turned against each other. I'm not your enemy. You're not my enemy. The people who are doing this are the real enemy of all of us. But you know what? People aren't listening. You know what? The majority like of people in this country are not listening. Yeah. So screw it. White power. You know, it's, well... When the SWAT team comes, I'm sure this will make the news. This show right here and that little sound bite. Well, good. Fine. I'm just you know what? You know. you know, I'm not all about that, and neither is Frank. I mean, I don't think you are. So they can, they can, po- they can act like it's, that's, that's the case, but it's not the case. You know, we're not all about hating on blacks or hating on Hispanics or whatever. It's just, you know, that's what they want everybody to think, that whites hate blacks and white hate. You know, no, I'm about hate. Like I'm about hating. I'm about hating on the government That's criminals. Right. That's who I'm about That's hating right. on. Like you point out, almost every day, if not every day, on your show, they're the real enemy. The they are, but you know what? If government. if nobody will listen, the fact of the matter is, they are baiting the black population. They yeah, are right. baiting the Mexican population. And if the white population doesn't get their head out of their behind, you're going to be destroyed. That's well, that simple. They do, they do seem to, you know, be an organized thing. I mean, I know definitely the illegal invaders are, you know, the whole Reconquista. They want to take over the United States and stuff, you know, and, and they're coming over here in droves. And, you know, they do want to kill us. I mean, they've well, and I don't. You know what? I don't think ten-year-olds and up. I honestly guys. don't think that most Mexicans, even illegals, I don't think most of them, the majority of them, I don't think they want to kill anybody. No, not most of them. That's a, that's a stereotype. But I'm just. Saying it's not a stereotype. They're, they're real people. They're real people saying these real things no, about killing every white person over 16 years old. A certain segment, I just pointed out that they're the Jesse said. Jacksons of the Mexican movement. Okay, that's yeah. who they are. Yeah, I'm sure they have their people just like Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton. You know, play the race card. Well, sure they do. They they have their people that are agent provocateurs that you know go out there and tell them. And the hey, Mexicans got the well, the Mexicans and uh, the blacks both have them in Congress. Yeah. You know, and it's just, it's all just a diversion. You talk about a diversion, this is the biggest diversion. They keep us spinning our wheels against each other instead of looking at them because they're the real criminals. They're the real enemy of all of us. Not and Hey, and I got news for you. Not just all of us in the United States, all of us everywhere on this whole planet. The federal government, the United States, is the biggest enemy of every living thing on this planet. I don't care if you're a cat or a dog. They're your enemy in Washington, D.C. They are the most hideous pile of dung that has probably existed in a thousand years. And that's the real enemy. But yet, you know, we spin our wheels about, oh, whiteness and uh, blackness and, uh, oh, who's getting what. And, you know, we're all getting bent over the hood is is the bottom line. That's true. And for anybody that thinks, you know, oh, they're going to vote for Obama or they did vote for him, depending on the White House, you know, because they actually believe voting counts, because he's a black dude, you know, I mean, look at him. He's just a rich, 
privileged person. He's always gotten everything. They've made up his whole background. I don't even believe he went to any of those universities. You know, he's just privileged. Every, every time I've elite. had the opportunity, and I, I got to say, I don't get many opportunities like I used to to talk to anybody that's black. But I don't get to talk to the Jesse Jacksons and the race bayers. But every time I have, I hear the same thing. They all believe that Obama sold them out. Yeah, they wanted a black president. Who wouldn't if you were black? I mean, you know, it's never happened before. It's not a bad thing. Look, I wouldn't mind having a black president at all. As a matter of fact, what's his name? Alan Keyes would have been a much better president than, you know, George Bush. But, of course, no, 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 no. And you see, hey, who ran against, who ran against Obama for Senate? Hmm? Alan Keyes, another black man. I'll tell you what. I don't trust him either. Well, Alan Keyes is a globalist. He has globalist leanings, but they all do. And a Catholic. You know, but... And or... Well, you know, I don't care. But the thing is, I don't think... I think everybody is so nominal now that it really doesn't matter what your religion is to get in the White House because, you know, most... If you're a politician, chances are, whatever your religion is, you're not following it. You're just saying, yeah, oh, it's like Bill Clinton, you know, how he wheels his Bible out and goes, oh, yeah, look, we're going to church. Oh, yeah, wow, yeah, that's just <laughs> another Christian guy, you know, uh, Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. Sure, like, I, and maybe he is. I don't know what he believes, but, you know, the bottom line is it didn't affect his presidency. It didn't affect what he did. It didn't affect any decisions he made. He didn't go, well, I don't know uh, what I should do. Let me go check the Bible. Bill Clinton didn't do that. George Bush didn't do that. Ronald Reagan didn't do that. It's they all claim really a Jesuit. They, they all claim Jesus. they all claim to be Christians, you know, Protestant, Christian, whatever. Yeah, they're all the same anyway. Even Jimmy Carter. They're he, all a bunch of He was touted as, you know, the Baptist or the Southern Baptist president and he didn't go, Well, I don't know what we should do. Let me go check the Bible. Yeah, Southern Baptists are led by Freemasons anyway. You know, that whole argument about well, you know, really it, that was a Kennedy argument. Well, we can't have a we can't have a Catholic right. in the White House because the Pope would be running the place. Well, yeah, that now didn't you have happen. The Pope coming to address the UN and Congress in September. That criminal who should knows be what they, he's gonna say. that criminal should be locked up. They should arrest him when he enters the United States, and I mean that because the Pope. I, I, look, folks, you want to know what I'm talking about? You go. Hey, that'd go, be a good time. Go on the uh, go on the internet. Get them all together and check out the. Uh, the the Pope uh, the uh, Catholic Church's bank. You want to see some criminal activity? Go look there. There's lots of articles on it, and boy, it's one big crime uh, scene over there at Vatican City where this Mister Oh I Love Everybody uh, operates. So he is a criminal. You know, you were probably all thinking I was talking about, well, all the pedophilia and all the, you know, molesting all the boys and that stuff. Well, yeah, sure, that's a crime, too, and you all know about that, but nobody's doing anything about it. What about the Vatican Bank, man? That's a huge, huge crime scene. He should be in jail, along with most of his people uh, at, from the Vatican. They should all be in jail. Not to mention what they did in World War II. They're war criminals. But, hey, you know. And he's totally blasphemous. You know, they all the popes are. They well, say they're infallible. You know, they're perfect. They're infallible. They can't sin. And they can forgive everybody else's sins, though. 
Well, this pope. You just got to confess to them and well, call them father, even though the I, Bible tells us not to ever do that. All right. Well, tell, you know, tell them all your sins. I read yeah. a bunch, a bunch of his his little statement that, of course, he didn't want anybody to see. Yeah. But uh, I read a whole bunch of it and, until I got to where I read enough to know that. And, and here comes a shocker to all of you: this pope. Remember the old thing when somebody says, uh, "Well, uh, hey, you going to the place tonight?" Hey, <laughs> is the pope is the pope Catholic? Do bears crap in the woods? <laughs> yeah, well, guess what? This pope is not Catholic. Okay, he's no Catholic. This is a pagan. He believes in Mother Earth, Gaia. Ah, oh, they've been doing that pagan junk in the Catholic Church for so long. It's ridiculous. Well, doing. Black Sabbath and witchcrafts, all kind of black masses stuff. Black Sabbath. Now I thought well. that I thought that was Barbara Bush's favorite band. <laughs> hey, actually, yeah, uh, I think it's is it? Yeah, I think. It I is. think she said that. Sabbath, bloody Sabbath. I think it's her favorite song or something. Yeah, well, that's what her son said. G.W. I believe. Yeah. You know, because she's supposed to be related to Aleister Crowley, so it all makes sense. Well, she kind of looks like him. She looks exactly like him. Maybe she is him. Maybe. Uh, transvestite, maybe, maybe she'll a transvestite come out just Crowley. like, uh, what's his face did? Bruce. Call me Caitlin, it'd be call me Crowley. Yeah. Call me Aleister. Tran Crowley. <laughs> Anyway, okay, we're going to take a break, and we'll play Stump the Room, see if I can get the room this time. We'll be back in a bit. Studies have 
shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it. It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now.
and I can sing. You wrap yourself around me just like a yo-yo string. I'm your host, Francis Steph, and you're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is the 22nd of July, 2015, Wednesday, about 9.38 and a half out here on the Pacific Time Coast, if that's when it is where you're at. We are, in fact, live, 800-932-1980. And uh, go to the chat room, theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com, and you can go there and witness the defeat of the room. Anyway... It's Wednesday night. We've got Melissa Roxanne on as co-host. Welcome back, Melissa. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. Go sit down. Anyway. <laughs> okay, that second song there was The Amazing Rhythm. Oh, gosh. He uh, sounds like David Lee Roth somewhat. Huh? That singer sounds uh, a lot like David Lee Roth. You the American so? Rhythm, uh, the the... the the amazing rhythm aces. Do you not think so? Kind of. Um, and then the first song now, I'm not going to give it to the room. Because the game is the band. But they did get one of the people in the band. Hmm. Well, you know, hey. they Okay. It was the Weavers is the name of the band. And who is in... The, the band, okay? The band is Ronnie Gilbert, Lee Hayes, Fred Heidelman, Eric Darling, Fred Hamilton, Bernie Cruz, and Pete Seeger. Okay, so somebody in the room did guess Pete Who's Seeger. Who's the lead singer? I don't know. Is there one? Because if it's Pete Seeger, then I think we should get it. Well, but I don't know a thing about that band. See, that's like guessing uh, that's David Lee Roth when it's actually Van Halen. Okay, that doesn't. That's why I that, guess both. See, that doesn't that doesn't win. I guess both. I guessed Van Halen and David Lee Roth. Yes, Even but I didn't that think was, it was but really. Was, but it sounded like. But that, that was wrong. Okay. Yes, but I try to cover all bases. Right, but anyway, so uh, an amazing comeback on my part. Down yeah, yeah, oh yeah. two. And when it's like don't make Paul me, don't, Rogers don't, singing. Don't make me and, don't make and me some pull random the guy down. playing guitar. 
If we guess Paul Rogers, you, you should give it to us. Don't make me That's pull the saying. fader down. Ah, while I was down 0-2, I came back four absolute times. Absolute power. Yeah, it's good to be king. Corrupt, absolutely. Or it's good to be king. Unless you're the surf. Then it's bad to be king. Hello. It's bad for the surf. <laughs> it's bad for the king when the bad surf not to be surf. You know, not to be the king, but uh, you know, yeah. Okay. When he's a bad king. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, President Obama's not going to allow Congress to to even review two key aspects of the Iranian nuclear deal. They're secret. From the Congress, Republican lawmakers learned from international partners last week. Not even from him. Under the terms of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the International Atomic Energy Agency would negotiate separately with Iran about the inspection of a facility long suspected of being used to research long-range ballistic missiles and nuclear weapons. The Obama administration has failed to make public separate side deals that have been struck for the inspection of one of the most important nuclear sites. And this goes on and on and on and on. But here's the thing. Now, the Constitution is the charter, basically, for this government. And it gives the president treaty-making powers with the advice and consent of the Senate. There are no par there there's no provisions in the Constitution for comprehensive deals or agreements or arrangements or anything. It's either a treaty or it isn't. So they're doing something and they're like, Oh well it's not a treaty, that's why the House of Representatives is gonna look at it and it's like, Well, wait a minute. Nobody, no place seems to be asking the question. I mean people are asking, Well, is it a treaty or isn't it a treaty? What is it? doesn't matter what it is. If it's not a treaty, and it's not a treaty if the House of Representatives are looking at it, they're not calling it a treaty, the question really ought to be, where in the Constitution are you authorized to do this? I mean, really, folks, we've got to start asking that question of our congressmen and our senators, and don't expect a straight answer or to change the world or anything like that. But if they get enough calls... They're going to start worrying. Uh-oh, these people are asking questions that we cannot answer. Because if we did, they'd kill us. Where in the Constitution are you authorized to do anything except a treaty? They're not. And that's the bottom line. They're not. They're just playing fast and loose and doing stuff that... They have no authority to do. It's like me going and saying, well, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go sign a nuclear deal with Iran. Well, you can't do that. Why not? Why not? I mean, if they can and they don't have any authority, I don't have any authority either. Well, you know, wait, wait a minute. I actually have more authority than they do because I am authorized to make deals on my own behalf. So I can make a nuclear deal with Iran if I'd like to. They do not have that authority because they're not acting on their own behalfs unless, are they? Could Aladas be right? Could the United States government be nothing but a fraud, nothing but a corporation, nothing but some kind of entity that 
we know nothing about? I think so. I, you know, there's something going on, something illegal going on, by the way. Anyway, I have more good news. Apple gives a weak forecast. Shares fall nearly 7%. Yep, the forecast overshadows Apple's strong sales in China, which more than doubled to $13.23 billion from a year ago. Well, wait a minute now. You've just doubled... Like you're making thirteen billion dollars a year, and you're got you got trouble. You know what 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 kind of companies are these that? You know, Apple said on Tuesday it sold forty-seven point five million iPhones in the third quarter. Forty-seven million iPhones are. Hello, are these the iPhones that sell for like five hundred dollars? How can you how can you lose money? Okay? How can you be in financial trouble when you make that kind of money? How can that be? I mean, here you are selling phones that probably cost you a dollar fifty to make because you're utilizing slave labor from China and you're turning around selling them for five hundred bucks, you sell forty seven million of them and you're you've got financial trouble? How how do you do that? How can you do that? Can you can you imagine that, Melissa? How you could do that and and claim you have now now I have financial trouble. Mm-mm. No, N O. Can't imagine that. Yeah, well. How could anybody imagine that? I can't imagine paying five hundred dollars for a phone, either. Yeah, at least. They cost more than that. Well, yeah, the brand new ones that you got to wait in line for and camp out like we saw them doing I mean, down I here in Medford, Oregon. I see them on eBay on the daily deal, which if you haven't checked out, check it out. Um, it's always free shipping, and it's supposed to be, you know, really good deals, and I'm sure it is, but even then, when they have these really good deals, it'll be like half price for these things or something, and it's still hundreds of dollars. Yeah, it's insane. It's insane. Well, just remember, the I in iPhone stands for idiot. I mean, that's, that. you know, what else can I say? Speaking of phones, okay? Huh. That's right, I'm rolling. Yeah. Speaking of phones, Federal Communications Commission Commissioner, the liar, a, a, uh, not, not the liar, this is the guy that actually stood up and said uh, he is one of the commissioners. He's not the top commissioner. This is the guy that was you know, all against these rules that they just passed. He says a CBS4 probe of a government cell phone program revealed fraud, waste, and abuse in the government's Lifeline cell phone program that he called shocking. By the way, folks, Lifeline cell phone program is what we all know as the Obama phone. The CBS4 story highlighted the fact that in places there are no safeguards, workers are signing up people using fraudulent certifications. Uh, the comments from one of the top administrators at the FCC came seven months after CBS4 investigation had just weeks after uh, played the broadcast, reported at a monthly FCC meeting to his fellow commissioners. He could see problems with the program before they voted to broaden the program to include broadband service. He said to them, 
This is an FCC program. If we don't take action, fraud like this will persist. So, you know, every in every aspect that the Obama administration is involved, there is fraud. Okay? With a capital F. It's just another He's example. He's the ultimate fraudster himself. You know, Whoa. with a fake birth certificate, the fake background. <laughs> he was cloned from some the Egyptian fake, pharaoh. The fake female wife. Family is fake. They're not even married. I don't believe she ever had kids because how could she? she? I know. It, whatever. Giving her, giving her a lot at there, yeah, aren't I think you? they've all been cloned and they came from a test tube myself. Well, a cloning tube, actually, but... But anyway, um, yeah. Anyway, you ready for me to roll? Yeah, roll. Okay. Now, court declares air fresheners pro-police stickers as reasonable suspicion for cops to pull you over. The ruling upholds the The what now? Air fresheners. Oh, boy, yeah. How many people have air fresheners in their vehicle? Now they can use it to pull you over. And why is that? Because we're trying to cover up contraband, the odor. Ah. Yeah. So, you know, everybody with an air freshener in your car, just get ready. And uh, they claim if you have a pro-police sticker, same thing. It's reasonable suspicion for them to pull you over. Even a pro-police sticker. I guess guess you're pretending to like the cops or something, so you're really anti-cop. That's all I can figure. Okay, so... Of course, they don't. They don't care if you're a Freemason. You got one of those stickers on you. They'll leave you alone. So. Well, what about what about a bumper sticker like you know I stop at yard sales like I shoot police. What about something like that? How how would that do? Would that be all right? That's not pro. That is not a pro I don't police think sticker. That would work out so well. I wouldn't recommend it. But what happened was uh, last Thursday, the Fifth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals ruled that it's suspicious for a vehicle to have air fresheners rosaries, which I don't like those anyway, or pro-police bumper stickers. The ruling stems from a 2011 Texas court case in which a couple was pulled over for having rosaries hanging from the rearview mirror, as well as a few air fresheners and a dare sticker on the back of the vehicle. You know, the cops that come and talk to the kids about don't do drugs, dare, that program. So, Nohemi Pena Gonzalez. It's actually the program that seizes vehicles for their own use. Well, that's that. how police. That's how police agencies end up with, uh, like, uh, Corvette police cars. Okay. Well, I thought it was the the one the anti drugs for the kids. Oh, it is. Oh, it is. That's their cover. Okay. See, yeah. that's their cover. They they say they need to seize all that money and all that yeah, property yeah. so they can, so they can talk aff- to the kiddies. Yeah, so they can afford because okay. those kids need paid, man. You know, those kids need paid. Well, somebody, I, I guess, you know, they need all this money. You know, somebody's got to be getting paid, right? I figure oh, it's yeah. the kids, right? Oh, don't wear a seatbelt. It's all for the children. Auditorium where there's like 100 people at least, and they're getting. It's all for the children. They're getting 25 a pop for you, so that's 2,500 a night. But anyway. And you got, uh, and you got, uh, you got emotionally uh, traumatized by the. Uh, yeah, actually, I'm I'm thankful that I got to go. I'm, honestly, rather than I'm paying a, yeah, rather than paying a hundred dollar no, 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 ticket, no. you bet. I'm honestly thankful that I got to go. I'm, I'm glad they shocked me like they did. Although I am, I did, I do wear my seatbelt. Well, gee, if I, I knew you, years, if I knew you liked that sort of thing, Melissa. I went years Melissa. without wearing my seatbelt. You know it. 
But then I then I started wearing my seatbelt. I used to not wear glasses. The only time I wear glasses is when I drive. And I went years, I didn't wear my glasses, and I didn't wear my seatbelt. Then I started doing both, like clockwork, for a long time. And one time, I'd go like a block from one parking lot to another to meet Frank, and I was late, and I was in a hurry, and I forgot to put on my seatbelt, and I got a motorcycle cop, pull me over, give me a ticket. See, I knew somewhere along here I'd be blamed for this. $110. And Frank wasn't even there when I got there. But anyway, yeah, I tried to tell her, but, you know, then I go to this thing, and they tell me, oh, we we never let you out of a ticket. We never, you know, listen to any story or give you a warning if we pull you over for not wearing your seatbelt. And the same thing goes with if you're using a cell phone. And probably if you're putting on makeup or you're eating, you know, any kind of distracting type thing in this county, they don't ever let you go. They always give you a ticket. And but the 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 cop I have to admit was nice. You know, you can say what you want, but she was nice enough to tell me there there's a thing you can go to. You can, you know, sign up for traffic school, whatever. And instead of paying a hundred ten dollar fine, you could pay twenty five dollars. Do you know why they never give you a warning? Is it because they love you and they want to keep you safe? No, no, but they're making all that money. Yeah, the they never give you a warning. They, made that night they never least. give you a warning because they want to write those tickets. But they want to get me, that money. She told me, she's like, we're not supposed to tell people that. Well, yeah, she's but... She's like, but thanks for being nice. Here's the, here's the trick. Yeah. They're not supposed to tell you that, but when you call the court mm-hmm. and say, hey, I got this ticket, what do I do? They will tell you. Well, I probably would have found out anyway, but I'm still thankful she told me, and I'm thankful I got to go, like I say, because, you know, I had to fill out a piece of paper at the end about my views on the whole deal and anonymously or sign her name, and I did it anonymously, although they could probably tell who I was, but uh, I told them, you know, I thought it was really good what they did, what they said, and they did really, believe it or not, the you know, the cops, the guy and a guy from the emergency room did it, a cop and a guy from the nurse room. And, I mean, they seem to really care. Now, I'm not going to say every cop's like that or every cop's not like that, but those ones that I saw, you know, the guy talked about how he holds people's hands at the scene of an accident, you know, before they die and stuff, you know. And the same goes when the other guy has to go talk to the family members of somebody that did die. Do you and see? he said that when they're trying to save somebody that wasn't wearing their seatbelt or whatever, they allow the family members in there to watch them do it, you know, because they want them to see that they really tried their best to save the person. So, you know, I think the people had good hearts, even though all of our hearts are evil. Do you see how You're going to say all of a sudden now I'm pro Yeah, do you see how quickly you can be brainwashed? No, but, hey, I'm glad I got to go because I did get to see actual people that died in this county from not wearing their seatbelt. I saw a kid. Yeah, that's always a big thrill. I saw a kid underneath a car on top of him. Okay, I saw things that you know you don't want to see, and and it shocked me into thinking, you know what? I was stupid not to wear my seatbelt for that little block because I could have been. I could have told you that. I could have been one of those people, but I didn't purposely. You know what? I could have saved you twenty-five bucks and told you you were stupid not to do that. I do think I will think before I don't wear my seatbelt again, and I'll try not to ever make that mistake again. Because I didn't really mean to make it, but I'm going to be very careful about it from now on. So, back to this thing, you know, um, they they claim, and the court claims, we do have concerns. Uh, She was driving just two uh, miles per hour over the speed limit, this lady. 
The officer did not pull her over when she was speeding, because she was speeding, but because he suspected that she was trafficking drugs and found the contents of her vehicle in the sticker for D.A.R.E. to be suspicious. So eventually the officer questioned her husband, who agreed to allow the officer to search her vehicle. The officer did not find any drugs, but did find a large sum of cash that he confiscated. And then he sent the guy to jail. So recently the case was taken to the Court of Appeals, where it was decided that Officer Tamas had reasonable suspicion to detain the family and ask to search the vehicle. The court wrote in its decision that, quote, we do have concerns that classifying pro-law enforcement and anti-drug stickers or certain religious imagery as indicators of criminal activity risks putting drivers in a classic heads-I-win, tails-you-lose position. But we don't give a damn. We don't, because we hate y'all. Yep. We need not decide whether these items alone or in combination with one another amount to reasonable suspicion, because we find the more suspicious evidence to be the array of air fresheners and inconsistencies in the driver's responses to the officer's basic questions. We have long recognized that the presence of air fresheners, let alone four of them, placed Wait throughout Wait a minute, SUV. back up, back up. The what? The answer? What kind of answers? He says inconsistencies in the driver's responses. Oh, okay. See, inconsistencies. And they can say that about anything you say. Not if you don't say anything. That's true. Don't talk to cops. So no. they claim, you know, the presence of air fresheners they've long recognized, let alone for them, placed throughout an SUV, suggests a desire to mask the odor of contraband. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So, you know, the thing is, yeah. though, really, folks, it's like, here's, the, here's your documentation, officer. I'm not answering any questions. Uh, get me an attorney. You know, you want to conduct a criminal investigation, get me an attorney. I'm not answering any questions. And, and but you're really anti-attorney, right so would you really say get me an attorney? Well, uh, probably not, because that's not correct, because that's not what you're well, guaranteed. It's really right to counsel. Yeah, anyway, that's, not, that's not what you're guaranteed under the Constitution anyway. You're guaranteed to counsel. That's right. And the Supreme Court has actually uh, ruled that it's not just counsel. It's counsel of, of your, your choice. choice. Right. That's right. And counsel of my choice may be me. Well, yeah. I don't see how they can't say Because why can't they allow it to be you? What if you want to do it for yourself, pro se? Well, sure, you could do that. But, uh, you know, that's uh, that. why would you want to do that? Well, a lot of people do represent themselves. Carl Miller. Well, yeah, and okay. Carl Miller's been to the Nut House several times and locked up for a long time, you know, I mean. Well, and he won, too, a bunch of times for that, but I guess know, that's why saying, they locked him up. You know, up. I mean, I, I don't want to encourage people to do that because they'll get themselves in well, trouble. Well, and then, or you can get an attorney that's just going to be well, part of the bar. Well, I'm not saying get an attorney either, but counsel is somebody who knows something about the law. Now, if you want to get a, for them, if you want to get a bar attorney... Then, then understand the relationship between counsel, okay, and that you. for the state. See, attorneys are not necessarily counsel. Power of attorney. They are representing you now. This is why when you're in court with an attorney, the judge tells you, hey, you be quiet. Your attorney's talking for you. You shut up. I've seen it happen 20 times. Well, you went to court... To represent somebody, and they told you you couldn't because you were. What, well, it wasn't. You were. What were you? What were you? It, a paralegal. A it paralegal. wasn't court. It was a hearing, and I did get to go. I know you did because it. you told them, and they looked it up, and they were, you were right about it, and they had to let you. That's right. But we are. And you won the case. 
Well, I got the guy more than what the attorneys across the street got. That Those people, they got nothing. This guy got his driveway paved, at least. Of course, that's all he wanted. Anyway, we are out of time. That's pretty expensive, too, huh? What? Isn't it, was it black, you know? Yeah, regular pavement. Asphalt. So that's pretty expensive. Yeah, well, that that's, why like they didn't want to, that's why they didn't want to do it. That, but but I don't like it. That's what he had beforehand. Anyways, we got to go. Right. Thanks for being on. Thank you. We'll see Melissa again next Wednesday, and she has her own show on Mondays. And uh, I will be back again tomorrow. So thanks for listening. Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Time is money and knowledge is power. That's why you need the Basic Research Library CD from the American Voice Now. This CD contains the Federalist Papers, which are the definitive writings illustrating the intent of the Constitution, and the Anti-Federalist Papers, which read like a crystal ball to everything gone wrong concerning the present-day Constitution. This CD also contains Bovier's Law Dictionary and the Uniform Commercial Code, plus the inaugural speeches of the U.S. Presidents, the UN Charter, NAFTA, Hitler's Mein Kampf, the full Communist Manifesto, the Patriot Act 1 and 2, the model anti-bioterrorism law, the Homeland Security Bill, the FBI's Project Medigo, and too much more to mention here. The CD contains over a thousand files. To order your CD, go to www.theamericanvoice.com or call us at 541-826-9050. That's 541-826-9050 for ordering information. We're supposed to live in a civilized, free society. We don't. When they can walk in, take you as a child, turn you into a killer, and then use you, abuse you, and when you're when they're done, throw you away. It shouldn't happen. So I sit there and I start taking these puzzle pieces. And I, this fits. This fits. This don't fit. And I'm going like this to picture, and I sit back.
The lady walks up to the front. The guy walks up behind me. She looks at him and smiles, says, we've got one. And that's when it started. That, that is where they were weeding out who's good at this, who's good at that. Who's going to be a soldier? Who's going to be a psychic spy? Everybody knows that Hitler was looking for the ultimate soldier, that super soldier, ultimate warrior. Hitler was also heavily into the esoteric arts with mind control. And they, at that time, they started combining the two. Mind control, super soldier, ultimate warrior. They started putting it all together into one project. And that's where they got me. My kicks in my right leg were 120 miles an hour. My punching power was well over 18 to 1,950 foot-pounds. That'll bust concrete blocks. And I put three rounds through the heart of a very high intelligence official. This guy grabs me by the throat, and I just snapped sideways, threw my hands palm down, just threw them down, and screamed inside my mind. The guy goes up and back. I never touched him. I look over, and there's George Jr. sitting at the bar with the Secret Service bodyguards, drunk as a skunk, with the Secret Service trying to get him to calm down. Now, that's when I snapped awake. I don't remember driving there. Let's back up and find out exactly how you got into this program. They wanted people who were half Native American and half Celtic, whether uh -huh. it be Scottish, Irish, didn't matter, as long as it's Celtic. The reason for that is that the Native Americans and the Celtics are two of the races on the earth that are more superposed to paranormal abilities or psi abilities, okay? And as a matter of fact, both of these cultures practice paranormal abilities. So it, it's kind of genetic memory. It, it's in your, our genetic memory, okay? And I thought that's basically what it was until about two years ago when I found out that my father was a CIA agent. Uh, my father's been dead now for almost 15 years. I never had a clue. But with that new information, it made a lot of smaller tidbits of information and a lot of things that happened in the past. Now it all fits. Okay. Basically what happened with me is in 1966. I was six years old. And both my parents loaded me up in a truck, took me to town. Yeah, it's at the edge of dark, it's cold, snowing. I'll, just, I'll never forget today, okay, because it stands out. Why are we going to a hardware store this late in the afternoon? So we go into the store, and at this time my mom and dad are like, not fighting, but they're not getting along. And I've been in this store several times with my grandfather. And we go into the back. I've never been to the back. And there's a door there that if you didn't know it was there, you'd walk right by it. Mm -hmm. So we go in. And here's six, seven other kids about my age. And they're all sitting at these tables, like these kindergarten tables, down, sitting down low with the small chairs. And they all have the same thing. They look like puzzle pieces. Well, this lady comes in that did not fit, okay? She's tall, she's elegant, uh, the fur coat, come on, this is Eastern Kentucky, okay? Uh -huh. Don't happen, all right? And she played a very prominent role 
from there on because I have she's in several of my memories. And she sets me down to play. She says, "I want excuse me a stack of blocks, okay? And what they are is these they're puzzle pieces." And says, "Make me a picture," and walks off. So I look around for my mom, and she's with a guy there who's in a suit who, again, does not, shouldn't be there, okay? And they have a clipboard, and she's signing some papers. At six years old, I puzzled, but you don't think much of it. So I sit there, and I start taking these puzzle pieces, and I, this fits, this fits, this don't fit. And I'm going like this to picture, and I sit back. The lady walks up to the front. The guy walks up behind me. She looks at him and smiles, says, we've got one. And that's when it started. Uh, I was given something to drink. I remember feeling sleepy. And that's it. So are, are you saying, did you go home with your parents no, that night? I, no, I did not. I see. I was taken uh, directly. This is what I found out later. Because once I went to sleep... With whatever was in the drink, the Kool-Aid or soda, whatever they gave me, put me out. My next memory was at nine and a half years old. So you you have a blank in your memory right mm -hmm. now. Yeah. Uh -huh. Now I have some memories have have came back, and I have bits and pieces of memories of what happened during all that. Some very vivid, some I have documentation, some are just memories that are there. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and then from so there. At nine years old, why do you remember nine years old? What happened then? Because I had to take uh, a stint in a hospital. A hospital here, the University of Kentucky. Um, they did some type of procedures that no one's ever really been able to explain to me. Even as an adult, I tried to get the records and no one will release those records to me. And from there, I had a couple of years as a kid where things seemed okay, a lot of paranormal activity going on and all that. Then at 14, I'm gone again. Gone to Just, the hospital? No, gone. Memories, gone. Oh. Okay, so... So, looking back, though, you basically feel that you were trained as a soldier during that time? Yes. Could you describe some of the training to us? The easiest way to do that is to back up for one second. Sure. Imagine Project Talent, the people in Project Talent, being sent to school. Okay. When we're in elementary school, we're all taught the same thing. Okay. That's where the martial arts training was started. I have vivid memories of 15, 20 of us in a group with adults, and they trained us as adults. There was no kid gloves, okay? Six, seven years old, eight years old, you got your butt off. I mean, they beat us tremendously, but we learned, okay? Mm -hmm. Once you, and the paranormal training started as well, Everybody that, that is where they were weeding out who's good at this, who's good at that. Who's going to be a soldier? Who's going to be a psychic spy? You you have at this time certain um, like a black belt in karate mm -hmm. or I even after I continued on, I took classes my uh, on my own. Uh, started a couple of studios. Uh, I hold a fifth degree black now, legitimately a fifth degree uh -huh. black in in the real world, right. so to speak.
Um, now, you also said something in an interview that I read that says something about having um, remembered when you started teaching karate, mm -hmm. this is how you triggered some earlier memories of all right. this. Right. There was one incident in particular. Uh, I had a friend of mine who was an ex-Green Beret, and he was, wasn't a regular. He would come in and work out with me when he was home on leave or those kind of things. And we're sparring one night, and he's a big, rough, brawl-boned guy, okay? He's, you know, he's going to go in a bar and wipe half of it out and never break sweat. So we're sparring, and I did a technique that when he came up off the floor, He's angry, bum-fuzzled. Yeah, where did you learn that? And then it hit me. I don't have a clue. Where did I learn that? And he said, that came straight off the farm. I'm only 19 years old. I said, farm? What, you know, what are you talking about? Cow, cattle farm? Pig farm? What you, I, I didn't have a clue. And he said, the CIA training facility. The farm. And little things started clicking. Hmm. Okay. And... When I really started to get memories back was about eight, nine years ago when I had an automobile accident. And it ruptured three discs in my neck. And when they finally gave me the MRI, the electromagnetic resonance didn't mesh with the cranial implant. That you had gotten... Somewhere, somehow, I have a cranial implant. And I say this because I have it on film. And when they put me in the MRI machine, when they turned it on, when it started to spin, okay? Right. Imagine tremendous pain. Mm. Also imagine you're in there and you see a thousand TV screens. And they come at you at once. On each one of those TV screens is a picture. Each picture is a memory. And it's just coming, 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 coming. That's amazing. That's how I started to get total memory again. And now, I don't know, was this also correct? You were screaming and I the engine, yes. the, the, the MRI blew up? or The MRI caught, the machine itself caught on fire. That was, that's what brought, actually brought me out of it. Because I'm there and nothing but my underwear and a gown, holding my head, screaming bloody murder. And I, I noticed smoke, <laughs> okay? And the techs come out, nurses come out, and they grab me, and they want to do all this. They get me out of there. They start with the fire extinguishers and, and all that. Wow. Now, now, do you, do you have the cranial implant to it's this day? It's still there. It's still there. It's just, from what I understand, it's not working. Oh. And what makes you think it's not working? Because I haven't been used anymore. I haven't been had the blackout spell and be gone for three or four days or a week. Oh, with no wow. memory. Okay. They stopped. This one is dead center, dead center in the brain. It looks like a grain of rice, and it's like it's just dead center in the brain. It's, so it's right there. it's that small? It's that small. Wow. And I've had it checked uh, through uh, independent sources, and they look at it, and like, you got a problem. It's got to be removed. Man, you're going to die? I said, no, it's fine. Don't worry about it. I don't tell them what it is. Okay? I just want their opinion. I want to hear what they have to say. I don't say anything unless I have the proof or I have someone else who's willing to sign a deposition saying that they were there, they saw what they know. If I don't have proof, I'll say this is what I think. Okay. 
So back when you're a child and you go to the the hospital, you said, mm-hmm. did you have something going on with your body that they changed at that time? Do you know what happened? I remember going through a procedure, okay, and I remember waking up, and the the machine. So this would have been 1969, okay, and I remember the machine was about the size of this table canvas wrapped and they were bringing it down on top of me and it would get hot and I wasn't supposed to wake up I was supposed to be drugged completely while I woke up in the middle of it and I remember being dozens of tubes laying to each side of me where they had been plugged in one at a time what happened I don't know now did you have uncommon strengths or were you, you know, did you notice changes, drastic changes in your outlook towards reality? I, I mean, at 14, this is probably hard to tell, but, you know, as time went on, do you think that you developed at a different rate than other children mm-hmm. yeah. because of maybe some of this? I, I think know. so. Um, I've always been stronger, faster, more endurance than anybody around. And that is also the same with all of us that came out of these, these projects. Mm-hmm. That's part of the super soldier structure. Uh, they want the super soldier to be just that super, beyond normal, faster, stronger, more endurance, uh, pain tolerance, et cetera, et cetera, on and on and on. That's what they want. So can you tell us what um, what abilities you have? But if at the, yeah. the peak of your performance, if you call it, want to call it that, what do you think you were capable of? Physical ones, yeah. I've kept. The paranormal abilities, I have kept some. The main paranormal abilities come out when the alternate personality comes out. That's one of the things that they did to us. They gave us alternate personalities. So we were trained in the alternate personality. Um, I have witnesses that have saw me bust heavy bags with one punch. You're not supposed to be able to do that. I was measured... Uh, for punching power, speed, and everything at um, Burlington Wisconsin at a facility up there. It's no longer there. That uh, did all the testing for the the pro sports, for uh, the football teams and all that. My punching power, at this time, my weight was 175 pounds. And when are we talking? How many years ago or what year, if you generally speaking? Let's see. 1984. Uh Uh-huh. In the spring of 1984. Okay. And the testing came out as unreal. My punching power was heavier, stronger than that of a super heavyweight boxer. My kicking power and speed was even more than that. My kicks in my right leg were 120 miles an hour. My punching power was well over 18 to 1950 foot pounds. That'll bust concrete blocks. Okay, now in terms of your psychic ability, what were what were those abilities? My primary psychic abilities and the ones that I have kept in this personality is being able to get in someone's mind, uh, being able to far see what's events in real time. Uh, and when I mean getting in someone's mind, I don't mean reading their mind, reading their thoughts, hear their thoughts. It's more of what some people that I work with now we call picting. We see pictures of their thoughts. Like you may be thirsty, thinking about a soda. I'll look at you. I'll see a Pepsi can. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's 
what happens. And these type of abilities to a fighter, a soldier, or an assassin, think of the edge that gives that person. So are you, do you have absolute re recall of times when you're in the other personality now? I have witnesses to that, yeah. See, what happens is <clears throat> I w I'm not supposed to remember anything right now. <laughs> Okay. I imagine. The people who start to remember are usually late 50s, early 60s. Okay. Much too old to really do anything. But I'm not saying 60s old, but in this society, by the time you're 60, 62, anywhere in there, people so write you old, off. How old are you now? Because I, I, I can't tell. I'm 46. Uh -huh. I know. No, no, everybody so, says you don't look 46. That's one of the ever traits that we have. Mm -hmm. None of us look our age. Longevity. Yeah. Okay. Um, most of the people who start, when they start getting their memories back, when they get their memories back is when the personalities begin to, to mesh. They're no longer personality A, personality B anymore. They start going together. So when all the, these other memories start coming in, meshing with the other memories, they go nuts. Most people. So most, peop most of these people committed suicide. Okay. Okay. And not the ones who didn't wind up in asylums. Is it possible, Duncan, that they could also have been programmed to commit suicide? Yes. Like yes. they kind of self-destruct when no longer useful? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. So you kind of have beat the system in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. And you must have had struggles. So what's keeping you going and what is it that you think allowed you to, to sort of maintain? Mm -hmm. After the car accident, we moved from this area. We moved to upstate New Jersey. I was never supposed to lift anything over five pounds again. I was never supposed to hold my, be able to hold my arms above my head. That's how serious the neck injury was. Two o'clock in the morning, I'm sitting in my apartment in New Jersey, and this little voice comes in. Says, what the is your problem? What's wrong with you? You wimp, you're going to give up? You've got to fight her all your life. Get up and fight. I started doing push-ups at night. A year later, I'm fine. So you, you basically brought yourself back from your injuries? The injury's still there. I can go to a neurologist right now, let them do an x-ray, and they'll look at me and say, you need to be in surgery today. Hmm. Okay? Huh. But I refuse to go. Um... The pain is still there. I live with pain 24-7. And again, if I hadn't, this hadn't been done to me as a kid, yeah, I'd probably be taking pain pills on a regular basis. But you're not. I take nothing. Mm -hmm. So um, now I'm curious because you have this tattoo on your arm. It looks actually kind of beautiful. Um, is this something you got in Vietnam? No. Uh, this was supposed to be one of a kind. <clears throat> it's my design. Really? This was something that came to me in a, in a dream, actually. Wow. And I designed it. Is, that, is that a dragon? That's, that's a dragon. Uh-huh. And I had uh, a tattoo artist do it for me. And it stayed one of a kind for a couple of years. And then all of a sudden, I started seeing, <laughs> seeing it out. And she does have her work on a website. Uh-huh. And then I'm walking in the Walmart across the street of all places about six months ago, and there's a paperback novel 
And that's on the front cover of the paperback novel, identical. And you designed it. And I designed this. Wow, cool. <laughs> it's very nice. Um, so what happened in Vietnam? Because you have a really an amazing story about that. I was in North Vietnam twice that I know of. Okay. okay. Some of these areas are still murky because, mm -hmm. I, like I said, I keep finding out more things every day. Okay. Once when we were, I was 12 years old, okay, I know people say, my God, 1972, you were in Vietnam in 1972. Actually, we weren't in Vietnam, we were in Cambodia. Okay. We weren't supposed to be in Cambodia. <clears throat> a Navy SEAL team and a Marine Corps recon team were pinned down by the Cambodian May Rouge. They called in for reinforcements, somebody to get them out. And I'm telling you exactly what a Marine Corps recon captain and a Navy SEAL captain told me. Now, I have my own memories of it, but I saw it from my point of view. I'm going to tell you what, from their point of view. A black helicopter, a Huey, lands. Twelve kids come off the chopper. Yeah, there still are a couple things. It's Take your time. We got all the time in the world, no. and I can understand. Um, long story short, we came out, came off the chopper, formed a semicircle, and we all held hands. There was. Were they all boys? No. Were they all around the same age? Yeah, I was the oldest. Okay, so all around the age of 12? Anywhere between 9 and 12. I was team leader Okay. on that. Um, we held hands, raised our arms, and killed them all. Who did you kill? Every May Road soldier within 20 miles. How did how is it that your powers were able to target the other side and not I wasn't the um I wasn't the I'm trying to think of the phrase. I was like the lead battery, but I wasn't the one who who did the targeting. Aimed. So you didn't you didn't actually aim your power. You guys were the power. Someone else did the aim. Was it the kids that did the aiming or someone else completely? Some, one of the other kids. Oh yeah. Okay. Now, did you know the other kids? Mm-hmm. At the time, you knew the kids? I know one right now. Do you? Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, is this person willing to come forward or not? Not this one, no. Are they even aware that they're one of them? Mm-hmm. Are they? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, I mean, we really appreciate that you're sharing this with us because this is obviously a, a huge thing, and people never like to talk about the sort of negative side of yeah of the power of the powers of the mind, but obviously this is, is one of the applications and there's no reason to hide it. Um, it's not that, um, it's funny. Uh, I've done a lot of things that were not of my doing, not of my making. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them bring out an emotional response, some don't. Some are kind of like, so what? And some I have no control. Mm -hmm. And I go through this little emotional, and then I'm okay, and then 
I'm fine with it. Sure. You know, it's like, I can't cry on command. Believe me, I've tried. <laughs> okay. Um, but uh, the way it was explained to me, it makes perfect sense. Twelve kids. Imagine twelve batteries. Connect. You have one battery. You might get a. Oh, okay. Nothing. Add two. You get. You get a jolt. Add three. You get a burn. Add twelve. Mm-hmm. You get electrocuted. Mm-hmm. That's basically what we did. The twelve of us linked, joined up, through everything. Kind of to see my circle start from the center because I was in the center, like this, out. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened. And this is something you guys were obviously trained to do. Right. Do you have a re- have a memory at all? Has anything come back of your trainers? Remember the lady in the hardware store? Mm-hmm. Yeah, she figured very prominently when I was young. Uh, the next memory I have of her is in a lab coat. Oh. And I'm in this house. It's been described to me as the mansion. And I have my couple of ideas where this place is or was, but I have no, I have no proof. Okay. Mm-hmm. There is a, I'm in a hallway, and there's green and white tile. These huge, these 12 by 12 mm-hmm. tiles is on the floor. And I'm doing something that all of us that come out of this has the same trait. We don't like come down on one knee or anything like that, we squat. Makes no sense in some ways, but in some ways to us it does. We squat on the balls of our feet with the arms out loose, almost like an animal. Okay? Okay. About 10 feet away, I have a small water bucket. And what I'm doing is raising the bucket, trying to turn it over, sit it down gently. Raising it with your mind or with your hands? Correct, just with my mind. And what I'm doing is I'm raising it, turning it about halfway, and it's just dropping. I'm not getting it. Okay. And I look around, and this lady's behind me with her clipboard, you know, taking notes. And I tried to get a response. You know, I looked at her trying to be nice. I've almost got it. I've almost got it. And she basically just looks down, snarls, and walks off. Mm. You know, there was nothing nice about any of this. Hmm. Wow. So, okay. Do you you said you were in Vietnam twice to, mm-hmm. that you remembered? What was the uh, second time? The second time, all I remember is being shot down. We uh, were taken off in a uh, Black Hawk. No, I'm sorry, not a Black Hawk. That was uh, that's when another incident uh, in a Huey, and we got about ten feet off the ground. And took some anti-aircraft fire, and we we went down. And this Navy SEAL captain, who we've talked about, is the one that pulled me out of the chopper. Oh. So this, and this is the guy, the witness that mm-hmm. you say is also witness to the Vietnam incident that you told us right. with the kids. Correct. Um, and he was in charge of the... Where was he at the time? The easiest way to tell you about this guy, um, his whole family was CIA. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, he was one of the most decorated and had one of the best kill records in Vietnam. 
his uh, abilities as a sniper were unparalleled. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, he was also a sailboat captain because he pulled, I think, five, uh, five or seven tours in Vietnam. So, but he wasn't messed with the way you were, I'm assuming. He has, does have some memory gaps, mm. yes, okay. but not to the extent that I have or some of the other. And how did you guys hook up? When I started getting my memories back, I started looking for him. Because you knew who he was? I mean, you mm -hmm. now you remembered from the age of 12 who he was? Yeah. I remembered his face, and I knew being what he was, he's going to only be in certain circles. So I started frequenting those circles. And I finally found him, and we sat down at dinner at a casino and started trading stories, and that's history. Wow. That's great. Is he willing to come forward on record? He is, yes. Would you introduce us? Yes. Thank you. Absolutely. Okay, so can you tell us a little bit more? I mean, you were, I'm going to imagine you were a remote viewer. Am I right? Not one of the best, but yeah. Okay. Um, so you were physically trained. You were mentally very astute. What was your title? Were you, in other words, you said somewhere psychic spies, somewhere warriors? Correct. Um, my problem, and I've been told this by some very strong size, is my problem is that I fight the psychic abilities. I don't just let them flow. I fight them for whatever reason. I, I block them myself. Mm -hmm. I went, as I graduated through Project Talent, you know, I said it was a school, moving on. I, what, what age was this? Would you say this would have been uh, mid to late teens? Okay. I was turned turned into a soldier, a soldier with psi abilities. Mm -hmm. Like I said, I wasn't one of those that was put into the pitch black room and could tell you what a politician four thousand miles away was having for breakfast. Okay, I wasn't one of those. Okay. I know some people who were. Sure. But I wasn't. Now, do you, did you know um, Joseph McMonagall in that? That name does group? ring a bell. Uh -huh. I've been asked that before. I just can't say for sure. Okay. Um, so where were you based, do you think? I mean, you weren't based in Kentucky. No. No. Um, I have memories of being in several different training facilities. Uh, I do know I spent three years on St. Thomas, on the island of St. Thomas in the Virgin Islands. Mm. And that was verified to me about three years ago. Okay. I'm going around seeing people, and they're look, looking at me saying, I haven't seen you since you were a kid. I guess what I'm trying to get at is, you know, when you, once you were trained, you were sort of ready to go. So where did they use you? Do you have any idea? You know, were I you do. in war? Um, After NAM, um, I, I do have some vivid memories of a couple of assassinations that were carried out. Uh, I have memories of being on military bases, and I had it verified that I was at Norfolk Station, North, Norfolk, Virginia, uh, by a radar man who was stationed there when I was with a, a team, and he contacted me because he saw my picture, mm -hmm. and so he told me, he was t he, what happened during this time is that he told me things as fact that happened that I thought were just dreams slash memories. 
and he's telling me this without me telling him anything. Did you were you an assassin? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was. And I don't know. How did you assassinate people and and what kind of people would you be assassinating? Do you have any idea? I mean, were they people in wartime? Were they no. Americans? Some, yeah. Uh -huh. uh, one that I remember, and I think I remember it so vividly because it was the last one, the last time I ever did anything for the government, was in uh, D.C. And I put three rounds through the heart of a very high intelligence official. Now, do you have conscious memory of this? Or? Of this one, I do, yes. Okay. I never knew the name. I was given a, a photo, a target habits to the job. Mm -hmm. That's it. And do you, do you remember any operations taking place in other countries? France. In France? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. What the vivid memory is that I have, and I also was shown a photograph of me sitting at a little cafe mm -hmm. from the Eiffel Tower. Okay. Mm -hmm. I have no knowledge at that time of being in France. But the guy showed me the pictures of eight by ten black and white, and there I am, drinking something out of a cup of steam, and there's the apple tear in the background. Wow. And I remember doing a job, but I don't remember what it was about. Uh, a decoy was sent in, and what the lady was to do was to get the guy to come out of the bar, hopefully not exactly in his right mind, inebriated if possible. And my job was to snatch, grab, get the information, and then terminate. And I remember doing the snatch and the grab, and then the memory fades from there. Uh-huh. So you must see movies, right? No, I don't. Oh, you don't, you don't go to I movies? I can't. Okay, because I, I was wondering if, if maybe, you know, there's a lot of violence in movies, a lot of scenes of that kind of thing, and I was wondering if this might trigger some of your memories. They do. Violence, per se, does nothing. I love wrestling, okay? Uh, as a matter of fact, I used to incorporate professional wrestling techniques into my, my teaching when I was an instructor. It's not the violence, per se. The last movie I tried to watch of that nature was The Born Identity. Mm -hmm. I couldn't get halfway through it. Uh, I just, I do a total change. Okay, you see, your personality does a change? If my personality changes, uh, God help whoever I'm watching a movie with, and I usually I'll just get up and walk away. Sci-fi movies don't bother me, but anything concerning government black operations, CIA, NSA, uh, covert killings, mm -hmm. I can't do it. Do you have any remembrance of other planets. I know this sounds a little out there, but I have no. Heard of actually, some not. <laughs> actually, not. Actually, uh not. -huh. There is one thing that a couple of us share, and that is a deep fear and dread of the planet Mars. Bring up the planet Mars to us, and it's just like watching well, one of those movies. About to, I was just about to do that, so. Yeah, Mars specifically. There is something about Mars mm -hmm. that changes our entire attitude at that time. Uh, I know one person who point blank says they better leave Mars alone. Leave it alone.
Meaning, leave it alone, don't talk about it, or meaning don't, don't go, go there? Don't go. That they're waking something up. On Mars. Mm-hmm. Now you're, okay, you're still a psychic, would sure. you say? Okay. So you must have some thoughts or associations with Mars. Are you willing to talk about that? I mean, because I don't, I, I know that you said that you, you develop headaches sometimes after these talks. Mm-hmm. You know, where you, you know, reveal and kind of go back in your own mind as to your history. I'm having a good one right now. Headaches are part of the conditioning. Sure. Okay, it's a, it's a headache, but it's a fake headache. It's a, it's a programmed headache. I'd like to know if you see um, special machinery. Yes. Okay. It's, un- it's underground. Uh-huh. And have you seen any certain kind of beings there? Yes, they're in stasis. It's like a kind of artificially induced hibernation. Thank you. And is that, um, it's not humans that are in that state? No. It's the beings. And they're, they're very tall. They have long features. Um, Do they look like the Egyptian? Uh, quite beliefs? a bit. Okay. Quite a bit. Talk a lot about anger in, in the recent interview that I saw that you've got, I guess, on your site. Yeah. And... Uh, can you tell us a little about that? Can you describe the anger, how you deal with it? There was, at one time, it was pure rage. When these memories came back and when I started, I sat down and I started putting together all the things that, starting at six years old, all the things that was done to me, things that I was forced to do, et cetera, it was pure rage. Mm-hmm. You know, my first impulse was to go to D.C. and just, Go nuts, okay? Well, as the old saying goes, I'm crazy but not stupid, okay? And as a fighter, I was trained, channel your anger. Don't let your anger channel you. Mm-hmm. And that's what I started doing. So I took, instead of just being so mad I can't do anything, I turned out anger to being so mad I want to do something. And I've been I've stayed that way. So is that why you started writing books? No, actually I started writing as just kind of my own therapy, just to get it out. Mm-hmm. And I had never written anything. And somebody read some of it and said, this is pretty good, you need to keep it up. And so I did. And now you've got a book coming out, mm-hmm. isn't that right? Yeah, uh, Deadly Awakening. Uh, it's about everything we've talked about here, plus all the side streets that we don't have time to go up. Um, it's supposedly going to be turned into a movie. Okay, that totally caught me off guard. So. Well, that's that's wonderful. Um, you know, that that's very exciting. In terms of telling your story to a wider audience, what would yeah. you like to result from that? I would like to see enough people wake up to march on Washington and say these projects stop mm-hmm. and hold the people accountable. Okay, there's not there's not going to be class action lawsuits. There's not going to be prosecution. That's fine. You know, I got over that years ago. Everybody else involved needs to get over that. Just hold them accountable and stop it. Okay. Do you think this is still continuing this day? Yeah, absolutely, I do. Do you have any information about in what form 
these projects are continuing. I, I think said in the 60s there were a thousand kits. Of which there were one. There only yeah. 60 left. In 1966, there was supposed to have been 1,000 that were taken worldwide that was in my group, as it were. There's only about 20 of us left now. You know, I think what I have to have to explain. We were actually at six, seven years old, put in survival to fist. Okay, our personalities were split. Anyone, any normal kid, any normal person would not do the things that we did mm -hmm. in the right frame of mind. Mm -hmm. So they had to split our personalities, and they had a clean slate with that new personality. Had no rhyme, no reason, no right, no wrong, no concept. So they made it into what they wanted it to be. This is how they split my personality. Now, I don't know. I'm sure they did the same identical thing to other people, but, but I know for a fact not to each one. There were different techniques for different people, different kids. Now, the way it was described to me when I was a kid is it's your treatments, almost medical terminology. Imagine being six years old, and this is one of the funny things. I can talk about this about with very little emotional because it was done to me, not something I did to someone else. You're strapped naked to a wooden chair. Arms out like this. Here, you're strapped here, here, and here. Your fingertips are spread open. Things are inserted here. So you can't do this. And I know you noticed, because I saw it in your mind and I saw your eyes, I'm constantly I have a phobia about my fingertips. What they did is they inserted needles underneath the fingertips. That's bad enough. Hook those needles up to electric current and turn it on. And waterboarding is where you, you basically drown the person and then bring them back. And in my case, uh, they did two ways. Strapped to a chair and would take a water hose and just spray it, you can't breathe, and then you, and you're you gone, and they bring you back and all that. And then I remember having my head dunked. That's why I don't swim. Now, what would be the purpose of that? To, to cause pain, intense pain. What happens when the body and the psyche goes through, the amount of pain it can tolerate, you black out. You pass out, you faint. Well, the Germans brought over a drug with them. Once injected, it blocks those receptors. You can't black out. You can't even force yourself to faint. So once the psyche has gotten to a point where it cannot take any more, you have two choices. Split off into another personality to save yourself or die. Okay. Okay, I understand. When the pain becomes too much, the way you're able to survive and stay together mentally is actually to go someplace else. Exactly. And you go so far someplace else that you're actually in another, you're creating another you, you create part of you. Exactly. You create a total separate individual mm -hmm. to where they can pull out that alternate personality. Now, one second I'm me, next second I'm somebody else. Mm -hmm. Now I'm back to me. That's how they wanted you. Have you seen Manchurian Candidate? No. You never saw that? No. Okay. Um, well, if I refer to that movie, 
I don't know if you know what I mean, but... I know what a Manchurian candidate is, yeah. You know what it's about. Yeah. Okay. Is it possible that you could be activated by a phone call, say? The last time that I did a job, that's what it was. I got a phone call in the middle of the night. Can I be activated now? I do not think so. They burnt the chip out. Okay. Do you think it's a tone? Do you think it's words? I mean, do you have any idea what, what it is? I think it's a combination, it? and I think it's more than one. There's, um, in order to open a combination safe, you've got to have a combination, which is more than one number. So I think what they did, they set up, you have to have a system of checks, balances, and fail-safes mm -hmm. to where if you're watching TV and all of a sudden you hear the correct word or whatever, you freak out and kill everybody. Then you would start seeing this happening everywhere. There has to be a fail-safe to keep that from happening. So I've always thought that it's a combination of words, tones, numbers. I see. What, ha what have you. But what happened during this night is we, I was in bed. My wife and I were in bed. The phone rings. I reach over, pick it up, put it to my ear. No more than three seconds pass. I hang the phone up. I get up. I get dressed. I leave. I'm gone three days and three nights. And... At that time, we lived exactly 11 miles from the airport that you guys passed coming here. Oh. When I came back three days later, there was only 22 additional miles on the car. Mm -hmm. I went to the airport. But you have no memory on where you went. I went to D.C. This is when I went to D.C. and did a termination job on this oh. individual. Now, what year was that? 1985. So this is quite a while ago. Yeah. Now, here's something that I didn't, I'll tell you guys, I didn't want to put on the tape. I'm sitting in a Mexican restaurant, a very nice two-story Mexican restaurant, and I hear somebody laughing. This was before the president now was the governor of Texas. I look over, and there's George Jr. sitting at the bar with the Secret Service bodyguards, drunk as a skunk, with the Secret Service trying to get him to calm down. Now, that's when I snapped awake. I don't remember driving there. And I'm looking around, and I'm, where the hell am I at? And But there he is. I had one impulse. Kind of terminated. And I had a gun in my pocket. And for whatever reason, I fought the impulse down, and I didn't kill him. In other words, you remember who he is now, but you didn't know who, who he was At when you were time, there? I didn't have a clue. He was just some guy who was getting drunk with Secret right. Service around him. Exactly. I did not have a clue who he was. Now, I'm sitting there watching the news sometime later when the governor of Texas has announced his bid to run for the presidency, and I look at him. Oh, this was before he became president? Yes. I got it. Years before. So in that context, maybe it makes even more sense. And it's even scarier. What about underground bases? Do you think you've ever been in an underground base? I know where one is. <laughs> right here in the state. Um, when I was in my mid-late, mostly late teens, okay, that I remember the farmhouse that we lived on, was situated in a valley. And there were old logging roads that went all the way around 
the valley. I had a good five-mile run up and down the mountains on a good graded road. There was also some worked-out strip mines over to the southeast of there. One day I'm running up through there, and I decide to drop down the hill and go over and look around. As soon as I do, I can feel the vibrations in the ground. And I drop down, and I put my ear to the ground, the way my grandfather you know, taught me how to do. And I get up, and this little voice says, Get the hell out of here. As I'm running back up the hill, a chopper lands. Wow. I didn't go back anymore. But a couple of days later, two things happened at once. Okay, My father had a friend. His name was Paul Preston. Paul Preston was somebody, and still is somebody, that I would terminate with extreme prejudice. I don't care to say that. When I was 14, we were getting ready to work the field. We had a cash farm. And I was working on a tractor. We lived about a mile up a dirt road, off the main road. And I can sense a vehicle coming before it's halfway up. I stop and I look out, okay, and I see this grayish-silver van coming up into the driveway. Brand new. has a UHF antenna on top. I've never seen anything like this. Again, this is Kentucky in the mid-70s. Nobody had that kind of money. This was before the coal boom, before the energy crisis, before people made 20 bucks an hour. You know, people were lucky to make minimum wage, okay? And this guy gets out of this van, and I noticed it has Texas tags. I had heard my dad talk about this guy. They were childhood friends. And then this was confirmed to me later on that they were in the CIA together, that Paul Preston was actually station chief in more than one area. But he gets out of the, the van, just calls me by name. I never met the guy before, to my knowledge. And in that instant, I had two thoughts. One was run, because this guy's bad news, this guy's dangerous. Run. The other was take him out, kill him before he kills you. Okay. I'm only 14 years old. Wow. Yeah, my hair was longer then than it is now. <laughs> and my dad comes down from the house. And they do the handshake, slap on the back, huggy, huggy, all this kind of stuff. Well, Mr. Preston looks at my dad, gets real serious, says, we got to go talk. Now, my dad changes. His demeanor changes. So they go away for about 20 minutes. And all this time, you know, I got the tool chest. I'm working the tractor going, you know, spring plow, you know, all that kind of stuff. 20, 30 minutes later, Paul Preston comes back down from the house. He ain't talking to me then. He's in a real bad mood. Gets in the van, leaves. I barely saw my dad the rest of that day because this is early morning because it's still cool. You know, you don't want, didn't want to be around him the rest of the day. Okay, he was one ticked off. Irishman. Well, that night, okay, my mom had a habit of sitting on the front porch at night. And I slept upstairs. She came in that night about 10, 11 o'clock, screaming for my dad that there's something over top of the house. And by the time he went out, it was gone. And I could hear 
over the whole conversation. She said it was bigger than the house, was round, had lights all the way around it. I didn't know anything about UFOs. I knew nothing about that. I knew farming. I knew martial arts. You know, I knew how to fight. I knew how to hunt, how to track, et cetera, et cetera. I knew nothing about anything like that. So the next night, this happens again. The third day, something happens to me. Okay. All the time I work and I train. I work and I train. So I'm going 12 hours a day every day. I worked out even harder than I had ever done before. And I think the reason being is to go to bed early, because that's exactly what I did. I went to bed early. That night, I go to bed. I'm laying there. don't know how long. But I feel like I'm on fire when I snapped awake. I can't move. All I can do is open my eyes. The whole upstairs is full of light. And I can see a bipedal figure standing by the bed. I can see a head. I can see the arms. I can see the legs. That's it. And I know it's talking to me. It's telling me something. And the next thing I know, my dad is shaking my shoulder because my brothers saw the light and they thought the upstairs was on fire. That's all I remember. I don't remember anything again until I'm almost 18. Meaning no memories between the age of 14 and the age of 18. Right. I didn't get my driver's license until I was almost 18. Hmm. I should have had them at 16. I didn't get them until I was almost 18 because I wasn't around to get them. Do you remember what the being looked like other than two arms, two legs? That's all I could see. A torso, two arms, two legs, and a head. Not an oval-shaped head, but a head, head-shaped head. Normal, a normal-shaped uh-huh. head. Um, I'd estimate maybe six feet tall. Uh-huh. And it was white as well, but a paler shade of white than the rest of the white in the room. Uh-huh. I think all of these go together. The visit from Paul Preston, the craft over the house, and then my leaving again. All go together. And your father's anger, perhaps? Yeah. Okay. I think he may have thought, for whatever reason, that I was clear of it. And then Paul Preston comes back and says, uh, no. Hmm. I don't think he had a choice in the matter. Um, the only anger I have with them is not coming out and telling me something. Mm-hmm. Okay. Especially after I'm, adult, I'm an adult and I started getting memories back. And I started saying, okay, what gives here? I know this isn't what happened. I know this wasn't right. What gives? I think I, you know, I think I deserved more of an answer than can't tell you and leave. The first thing I did is when I started getting memories back is I started looking up old friends. And I would ask them, during this year, 73, 74, 75, where were we? What were we doing? I have memories of doing things. And every one of them, to a T, said, we were doing this. We were out to have doing this. Well, I remember that. They go, how could you? You weren't here. Hmm. And one guy even went so far as to say, we went up to the farm to pick you up one day to see if you wanted to go away. We hadn't heard from you. Dad ran us off. Those are so what I had of those years were false, false memories. 
<clears throat> the memories I had of camping, going to the Dairy Queen, you know, that kind of thing, were implanted. So, <coughs> you you also said in your writing that you have a one of your arms is is wired or something. The right you call one. Call it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, the implant is right here. I know it's right there for two specific reasons. One, I had a guy put the, a meter over it, and they found it that way. And two, it itches. Mm. And what it is, I call it an enhancer. It increases physical strength and, and speed. Is there's like wires that run from it to go down the arm, add them to the fingers, and it's only in this shoulder and this arm. It's not body wide. Mm-hmm. I wish it was, but it's not. Um, this is the hand and the arm that I busted many heavy bags with. Um, as a matter of fact, there was an incident to where I grabbed a guy who was a good 40 pounds heavier than me and just straight up off his feet. And then when I realized what I had done, mm-hmm. it just dropped. It's like it's tied. I, I don't know the science of how it's tied in. I, I really don't. But I know that it's tied in with the fight or flight scenario. When there's danger, it kicks in. If I feel threatened, it kicks in. The throwing of energy, yeah. That one freaked me out when it happened. Um, I had a job in Lexington, a place that was, at that time was called the Community Kitchen. Uh, there was no kitchen. What it was was a, a facility for homeless, indigenous, that kind of thing. We had uh, doctor's offices. We had social service offices, showers, clothing, all that. But it was also a haven for pushers, users, abusers, rapists, killers. You name it, they came in there. We could, ha- we could have 60 to 100 people in the facility at any one time, and I was chief of security. And we had a fight that broke out. I mean, it was nothing. We'd have three or four fights a day. Okay. But we had two girls get into it. They fight worse than men. Okay. And my partner had one holding her down. I was holding the other one down. And when I say holding them down, I was just sitting there with one arm on her shoulder. Okay. She was laughing about it. And the next thing I know, I look up. And I see this extremely large man standing over top of him. And he's got three or four friends with him. And he's giving this routine. I'm giving you the account of whatever to get off of her. I'm going to do this. Well, I snapped. I'm on the ground. I look up. I see I'm outnumbered, outgunned. I changed. Normally, I would have just rolled out of the way, got up, started cussing right back at him. Threw him out the door. Uh, no. I stood up and hit him. And the witnesses there said, I didn't just hit him once. I hit him 12 times in a matter of a second. Mm-hmm. It broke his neck. His neck was as big as my legs. And it, it just snapped his neck. Well, when that happened, the whole facility went berserk. It just went. Half of them were coming at me and my partner. And the other half was using it as an excuse to get whoever they didn't like. Mm-hmm. And it's during these times that something happens that I can't explain. 
It's like I step outside the space and time. Everything turns black and white. Everything goes slow motion. Hmm. It's like I've got all the time in the world to go from point A to point B because this guy ain't moving. Okay, and it's like I'm just walking through, bam, 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 guy's going down, and then I'm grabbed. This guy grabs me by the throat, and I just snap sideways, threw my hands, palm down, just threw them down, and screamed inside my mind. The guy goes up and back. I never touched him. And when that happened, that ended the entire fight. Because I'm standing there, and I'm looking around, and I'm suddenly aware that everybody's staring at me. And somewhere during this time, the cops have been called. <clears throat> so here come the cops, here come the ambulances, the paramedics. <clears throat> and I talked to one of the cops, give the report. Uh, half of them are taken to the hospital, the other half are barred out. Some are taken to jail. And I went to the nearest bar I could find. And I stood there because I didn't know what to do. I knew what it, I knew something had happened. I knew it was real because people were saying, were coming up to me, what did you do? How did you do that? And I'm like, I don't have an answer for you. I don't know. What year was this that this happened? 1989 or 90. Mm. I'm trying to. I worked so many jobs during that time, during those years. Which is something else that I've been told is vindicative of all of us that came out of these black operations. <coughs> None of us could hold a job. It was like, and I know from personal experience. We'd be the greatest thing since sliced bread for a couple months. And then all of a sudden, the boss or supervisor comes out, finds something wrong, and we're fired. What I found out over the, over the years is that I'm, that's not unique to me. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> is They want to keep you one step below poverty level, keeps your mind occupied on other things. Right, survival, right. daily survival, so that you, you can't go further into your own memories type of thing. And there's also another reason for that, and I've been told this by more than one person. Who listens to somebody who's broke? Mm -hmm. Sure. But everybody listens to someone who's wealthy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, that's, I think those two go together to make, to make that. There was an incident which you also reported that you described uh, as a kind of personal teleportation oh, yeah. incident or you went through a wall and you had a witness. Yes, absolutely. What do you recall about that? I get freaked out every time I think about that one. Um, it was at a house in Oklahoma and I was helping a friend of mine move. And I was in the one bedroom and she was in the kitchen. For me to get from the bed to the front door, would have entailed going down, cutting across, down, cutting across, very winding way. Well, as I said, she was in the kitchen, straight line, kitchen, living room, front door. No door in between, no wall in between. Well, she was reading and doing her own thing in the kitchen, and I'm sound asleep. And 
her youngest son gets up screaming and goes to the front door trying to get out. This is 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. She jumps up, starts to run to get him. I hear the scream, and I remember raising up on one, one shoulder in the mind, seeing the kid reaching toward the door, and I'm at the door. She said that I came through the wall in front of her, and all she could do was to stop and say, whoa. And I think whatever I did, if I had froze inside that wall, that would have been fun. <laughs> Uh, my grandfather, my mom's mom, was a full-blood Cherokee, and he gave me the name of Gray Feather. Gray Feather? Yeah. Uh -huh. And I asked him once, I said, you know, Pops, what does Gray Feather mean? And he said, you're a tween man. And he had an accent, and, and I said, what? <laughs> he said, you walk between worlds. And this is before I knew anything about anything. I saw 9-11 two weeks before it happened. I put it up on some bulletin boards on the net, was laughed at. I lived in Delaware at that time, right on the eastern shore, walking distance to the beach. I had a trip planned to Boston. A couple of days before the trip, because we were going to drive it, I get a phone call. And it's the metallic, digitized voice says, postpone your trip. Two-day window, plus or minus one day, wherever, here, here, or here. It's going to be something big happening in New York. You don't want to be, don't be caught in it. Now, have you had other premonitions that haven't come true yet? Yeah. I have, I've seen this country almost split in half. Uh, I mean, physically split in half. Again, I, I lived in Delaware, and I just laid down. And it's one of those times where one minute I'm here, next minute I'm here, okay? And I'm looking down on the United States. This is before I knew about the super volcano and, and all this and that. But I saw that area all going up into Canada, coming all the way down into Mexico. The whole western part of the country split off from the rest of the, of the United States. And what I'm seeing is like a, a river of fire coming all the way down. Wow. And did you have a timeline for that? Soon. Mm -hmm. Very soon. So do you, are you making any plans for yourself and your family because of what you're dreaming or seeing? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Uh-huh. Going, are you finding a safe place? There's really not going to be a safe place. Um, the best preparedness that I know of is to, to be able to be mobile. Mm. There is no one safe place. Okay. I started to go public when I lived in Delaware uh, after an attempt was made on my life. So when was that approximately? About um, 2002. I was out for a jog. I mean, I'd had other things happen before, but I didn't, at that time, never made the connection. Okay? Now I make the connection. I was out for a jog, and it, it's in the wintertime, and I hear a motorcycle. Motorcycle. 
You ever been on the East Coast in the wintertime when the wind blows? It's frigid. I have, actually. And I'm out jogging, and I hear a motorcycle, and I start the ears go up, hairs start standing up, one of those. So I go from a, a hard run just to a light jog, and I see the motorcycle. Solid black. No insignia. Just solid black. Two riders dressed in black. Black OPEC face mask. I'm going this way or coming this way. This thing is going so slow, I'm trying to understand how in the world it's staying up. And it, as it comes up to me, I'm running scenarios. Okay, I'm wearing ankle weights and wrist weights. Like, okay, I'm waiting to see a gun. And so I'm thinking, this was coming off, this is going to throw, forward row, kick the back wheel, try to get an advantage. Just all this is playing out of my mind. The guy does open his coat, puts his hand in his coat, this is the, the, the writer. All I see are two fingers, points them at me, and goes like this, and goes back. And I'm thinking, okay, this is just a warning, okay? And they slowly go on down the road, going toward Route 1 to go north. I didn't make it 10 steps. I had puke, bile, everything. I had to crawl home. I was sick for three days. I finally got to the doctor and said I had some kind of unknown viral infection. He did shoot me, just not with a gun. I think half the people who hear what I have to say Look at, look at it and say, what a lion stack of dung. This is so much BS. There is no way any of this could happen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I'll give a response that I gave a guy on a radio show one night. I wish that were true. I'd love to be able to take a pill every day and have a nice life. But I can't because it did happen. And I don't have the whole story myself. And I may never get it. What happened to me, you know, I, 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 know I, I told about how they split the personality. That's just the tip of the iceberg, okay? I remember the beatings uh, to being thrown naked into a refrigerator, refrigerator room because I couldn't get something right. You know, this went on and on, and not just to me, but to all of us that, that were in this particular group. And this stuff shouldn't happen. You know, we consider ourselves a civilized, free society. There's nothing civilized about this. There's nothing free about this. There is strength in numbers. I would like to see, I mean, come on. You can have a million-man march on Washington put together by somebody that the government laughed at. Why couldn't we do the same thing? This stuff has got to stop. You know, people... And like I said, we're supposed to live in a civilized, free society. We don't. When they can walk in, take you as a child, turn you into a killer, and then use you, abuse you, and when, you're, when they're done, throw you away. It shouldn't happen. And you asked earlier, what is the one thing that I would like to see come of this and any subsequent movies, videos, whatever? I want to sit in a chair just like this in Washington, D.C., in front of the full Senate and demand answers. I'd do it in a heartbeat. I ain't shy.
is the American Voice Radio Network, broadcasting live on satellite at Galaxy 7, Transponder 12, Audio 8.1. We're on the Internet at AmericanVoiceRadio.com. You can hear American Voice Radio 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. people die each year from hurricanes and related storm surge and flooding. Worldwide hurricane damage since 1980 is estimated to have exceeded $1 trillion. The amount of energy generated by one ordinary average hurricane is enough to run the entire world's electrical grid in real time, a whopping 2 billion watts. No human capability can generate enough power to stop a hurricane. But just maybe, we can control one. As it turns out, the key to manipulating weather phenomena most probably lies in advancing our ability to predict them. And in that area, much has changed. There are several weather centers around the world that uh, use global models to forecast the weather. And at these centers, they collect data of many different types. These data include observations from radiosons, which are balloons that carry instruments into uh, the atmosphere, observations from aircraft, many, many observations from satellites. Satellites don't just provide us pictures of the clouds, they also remotely sense the temperature and humidity in the atmosphere at different levels in the atmosphere, as well as quantities on the surface, such as sea surface temperature and the winds on the ocean surface. By sharing this massive quantity of data, scientists around the world can create a snapshot of the weather as it is at any one time. But what if we could use this data not only to predict the weather, but to change it? This is Ross Hoffman, a principal scientist at Atmospheric and Environmental Research in Lexington, Massachusetts. Ross Hoffman steers hurricanes. Using supercomputer modeling, he makes changes to the initial conditions on computer models of past hurricanes. His algorithms tell him what tiny change should generate a predictable result, and he enters that change into the model. Then he sits back and waits to see if this tiny change triggers a big effect. In essence, he is steering hurricanes from the past. We looked at Hurricane Iniki which struck the Hawaiian Islands in 1991, and Hurricane Andrew, which devastated Florida. In our first experiment, we just tried to simulate the hurricane, and we attempt to forecast it for several days, and usually we can do a, a fairly good job of that because there are good data sets for these historically important hurricanes. Then we attempt to find a small change at the start of our forecast, which has the effect of either weakening the hurricane or changing its position sometime in the future. We want to find situations that are sensitive to initial conditions, situations where small changes at one time can lead to much larger changes later on. The concept of predicting the tiny action needed to produce a huge result is a central idea in a growing field called chaos theory. One of the things that makes uh, weather prediction very difficult is that the weather system is chaotic 
And this means that very small inaccuracies in our observations can grow very, very quickly. The proverbial butterfly flaps its wings in Peru. The slight air disturbance sets off a cascade of effects, causing a tornado three weeks later in Texas. Predicting the exact string of events connecting the butterfly wing to the tornado is one goal of chaos theory. And so we allowed all different possible changes, including changes to the winds, changes to the temperature, changes to the water. The greatest thing was the first time we, we tried to move Hurricane Aniki, and, and my goodness, it actually moved where we asked it to move. But Hoffman can't accomplish his goal alone. Even if he can predict the exact location of the tiny environmental change necessary to steer the hurricane, he still needs to figure out how to make that change in the real world. Hurricanes get their power from the evaporation of seawater. It's everyone's common experience that if you get a swimming pool, you're wet. And even if it's a hot day, you can feel cold, particularly if it's windy because the evaporation of water from your skin is drawing heat out of your body. Well, exactly the same thing happens over the ocean in a hurricane. The winds of the hurricane evaporate seawater and draw heat out of the ocean. That water vapor condenses into cloud uh, in the eye wall of the hurricane. And the faster the wind blows, the more water evaporates and the more energy is supplied to the storm. It occurred to us that it might be possible to, to modify artificially the rate at which water evaporates. This may be exactly the small change that Ross Hoffman needs. The idea is to coat the surface of the water with a substance maybe only one molecule thick, which would have the effect of slowing down evaporation. Benjamin Franklin discovered already that a teaspoon of olive oil uh, would cover a whole lake, because if you're only got, got to have it one molecule thick, a little bit of substance goes a long way. So the question we had is whether we could come up with something that would hold together at these extraordinary wind speeds. For a protective coating to be effective, Emmanuel believes it would need to persist for at least six hours. The effect would be ideally as though the hurricane made landfall 24 hours before it really did. You know, everyone knows the hurricanes fall apart pretty quickly after they make landfall precisely because there's no more ocean left to evaporate. We're really doing the same thing artificially. Although the concept is sound, the correct polymer is still lacking. But skepticism and cost do not impede the hundreds of inventors and scientists worldwide who continue to search for the next generation of weather modification breakthroughs. I think uh, weather modification uh, will occur uh, almost inevitably. The recent results uh, that suggest you can do it with a little tiny bit of energy placed in the right place, I think will prove irresistible. And one can only hope that it's done for the right reasons and to good ends. And if we do it infrequently enough, like one out of a thousand events, it's not going to change the climate system. You shoot the bear that's about to maul you, you don't go into the woods with a bunch of guns and shoot all the bears. This is Walt Geiger. He's the head of the Western Kansas Weather Modification Program, one of the largest in the world. Their specialty is cloud seeding. Their mission? Hail prevention. So we're concerned primarily, at least on this project here, with changing the dynamics of the cloud. Natural clouds are relatively inefficient at rain production, so they need a help from uh, mankind, so to speak, and that's why we're here. Farming is the lifeblood of western Kansas. 
And Hale is the enemy. Now, western Kansas has a very high frequency of hailstorms. It doesn't take a very large hailstone to do damage to a particular crop like wheat or corn. So we're making every effort we can to decrease the hail that falls out here so that crops have higher yields. Those who've never experienced a serious hailstorm tend to underestimate the danger. The insurance industry knows just how damaging these storms can be. Perhaps that's why they're one of cloud seeding's biggest boosters. Hail damage is one of the largest damages that natural hazards produce. It's, I think, second only to, to hurricanes in the billions of dollars, like $2.5 billion a year. The insurance companies believe that they have reduced payments uh, on damage in areas where hail reduction programs have been operating. By forcing a storm to rain out quickly, seeding may be the only real way to control hail. With some weather modification programs dating back 40 years, cloud seeding is the oldest and simplest weather modification technology. All clouds are made up of some form of water vapor. For raindrops or snow to form, a tiny impurity called a condensation nucleus must be present. But in nature, they're rare. Cloud seeders use airplanes to inject impurities into the clouds. The water vapor forms droplets around these nuclei, eventually growing 100 times bigger, big enough for gravity to pull them from the sky. In a standard seeding scenario, the cloud bottom plane flies below the base of the cloud and releases silver iodide particles into the warm, rising updraft. The cloud top plane pierces the cloud core and drops dry ice directly into the supercooled vapor region at high altitude. This is Tad Delsing. He'll be one of the pilots flying out for today's seating run. It's his job to prepare the plane for what might be a rough ride today. Along with typical fueling and flight check tasks, Delsing also needs to fill the silver iodide seating tanks. Then he'll wait for Geiger's call. Cloud seeding pilots are not typical fair weather flyers. They spend every day penetrating weather normal pilots avoid. Unfortunately, during this type of job, you, you're going to have some encounters, no matter how careful you are. Pilot Kyle Spencer will be flying the cloud top plane today. He's had his share of frightening experiences. Been struck by lightning uh, numerous times. Most of the time, the lightning will just hit like the wingtip of the aircraft. The Cloud Warrior's worst nightmare? Getting too close to the enemy. Um, my very first season, a hailstone came right through the windshield of my airplane and and just grazed me on the neck and ended up in the back seat. Still about a baseball-sized hailstone laying in the back seat of the airplane. <laughs> back in his office, Geiger's making his final decisions about today's seating flights. Anything that deals with weather forecasting or just the general environment out there, you do have to have a little bit of luck and art and, uh, and some science, of course. Uh, it's more observation. Getting an idea of your gut feeling for what that storm may do later on as it continues to mature and grow. 
Geiger is surveying his target area for a specific type of cloud, one that's large enough to contain a supercooled region where water vapor is just waiting to freeze and grow into ice crystals, which later fall as rain. A front of large clouds are moving into the target area. Spencer and Delsing leap into action, weather warriors scrambling into battle. All right, clear on to the runway. As Kyle heads for the high-altitude cloud tops, Tad will cruise close to the ground and prepare. All right, we are airborne. Wheels coming up. What we're going to do here is we're going to pull right up under these clouds here that you can kind of see are growing a little bit on the sides. And we'll actually be running just parallel with the rain shaft coming down here to the south, trying to find our best area of inflow. Hawk 1 radar. During his flight, Walt Geiger will continue to radio Tad with updates on the cloud's position and size. Okay, I've been on it. It's at southwest, and, uh, or mostly southwest of you. And, uh, when Delsing finds the exact location of the updraft, he'll fly directly into it. As the ride gets bumpy, he'll ignite silver iodide generators to release the agent, where it'll be carried thousands of feet up into the cloud. Meanwhile, Kyle Spencer prepares for the more difficult task. He'll be penetrating the body of the cloud. At this ultra-cold altitude, dry ice is a much more efficient seeding agent, forcing water vapor to freeze around it. If they hit their marks, both agents will provide a massive infusion of condensation nuclei, and the raindrops will begin to build. But even after almost 30 years of cloud seeding service and some convincing results in hail suppression, there's still some question about cloud seeding's effectiveness as a whole. Scientists do generally accept that cloud seeding affects the clouds. They just can't measure or prove the results. The problem you have in showing that it works in nature is that you can't do controlled experiments. So it's very difficult to say, you know, if a seeded cloud rains, that it wouldn't have rained otherwise. Even without definitive proof, cloud seeding continues to be practiced in over 34 countries worldwide. But silver iodide and dry ice nuclei are Stone Age technologies compared to today's higher-tech particle payloads. The most amazing of these belong to a family of weather mod devices that are so small, you might not see one, even if it was floating in your eye. Ranging from the ultra-tiny to the nearly invisible, these are the revolutionary micro-machines that will be the workhorses of any world weather control system. They're MEMS, micro-electromechanical sensors. There are approximately 2,000 weather balloons launched globally, worldwide, every day. Those balloons play a huge role in helping us predict and potentially control our weather. But what if we could launch 10,000 weather balloons a day, or 10 million? That's exactly the theory behind GEMS. GEMS are global environmental MEMS sensors, a concept that we have come up with that deals with a massive wireless network of airborne probes. The idea is to release 10,000 or more of these dust-sized probes every day from airplanes, stratospheric platforms, or satellites. 
Like weather balloons, the probes would monitor weather information over every kilometer of the Earth's surface at a resolution that is today unheard of. We envisioned that the GEMS probe itself would have a bio-inspired design, something like a maple seed or a dandelion seed that actually incorporates the constructs of nature to achieve aerodynamics and buoyancy. With an ongoing stream of millions of measurements, the accuracy of our picture of the atmosphere could improve 1,000 times over. There's every reason to be optimistic that simply having more measurements of the atmosphere will lead to improved forecasts. It's also possible that the gems themselves could be made to play an active role in cloud dynamics. In effect, cloud seeding with a million microscopic computers. We could potentially use these very small devices either as cloud condensation nuclei to seed clouds the way that current weather modification is done, or potentially something even more futuristic would be to actually have the devices be active where they could introduce some perturbation into peak parts of the atmosphere to actually modify the weather. But if gems are heavier than air, what will happen when these millions of probes finally fall to Earth? When the gem probes land on the surface, either in the water or on the land, they would continue potentially to provide surface observations. But what about the ones that end up on your picnic table or in your hair? At the sizes we're talking about, if you actually inhaled one or got one in your mouth or one in your eye, it would probably be no different than, say, a speck of dust or a, a particular particle in the atmosphere that you would get in. You'd probably sneeze it out or cough it up. Useful as nanotechnology will be to weather observation and prediction, there's no question that it will also play a significant role in military weather operations. And it will simply be the newest weapon in a secret arsenal dating back more than 50 years. The history of the human hunger for weather control is as old as the species. And so is the relationship between weather and war. From Napoleon's defeat by the Russian winter to the Japanese use of a Pacific storm to cover the attack on Pearl Harbor, weather has virtually controlled the battlefield. The military was always deeply concerned with the weather. Generals have been concerned about the weather since ancient times, and very rightly so. And so it was natural for them to go from finding ways to predict the weather better to thinking about ways that they might be able to change the weather. As the nuclear age dawned, a new scientific era and a new world view began to emerge. Since the Cold War was beginning, there was also the possibility, well, maybe we can alter the weather over our enemy's territory for the worse. Maybe we can make it snow in Russia all the time. You know, let's, let's, they want a Cold War, let's give them a real Cold War. This desire to use our newfound power over the environment gave birth to the first large-scale weather modification experiment, Project Cirrus. Project Cirrus decided to uh, seed a hurricane. And there was a hurricane off the coast of Georgia that seemed to be headed away from land. Uh, they flew a plane into it and they seeded the hurricane. And, and when I read the papers about what they did, I had the feeling that these people were like kids down in the basement with a chemistry set. You know, let's mix these things together and see what happens. What did happen is the hurricane made a sudden turn and came in and hit uh, the Georgia coast near the city of Savannah, did a lot of damage. 
In fact, one person was killed, 4,000 sought shelter, and 1,500 buildings were damaged or destroyed in a single 24-hour period in October 1947. By the end of the day, the U.S. military classified the project and its data, effectively covering up the experiment to prevent litigation. Although scientists today believe that Project Cirrus's 80 pounds of dry ice probably had little effect on the hurricane, the military had gotten a taste of the ultimate weather modification dream, hurricane control. And that dream lives on today in basement labs and warehouses all over the world as private inventors continue to hunt for a hurricane killer. One of the most novel, perhaps even bizarre, weather modification ideas comes from a tiny company called Dynamat, run by independent inventor Peter Cordani. We're going to demonstrate, here's the superabsorbent that we created, and here's a bowl of water acting as moisture in a thunder system. And if you just go by sprinkling this on, you'll see instantly all the water is absorbed immediately. Dynagel absorbs 2,000 times its own weight of water and locks it into a non-toxic gel. As the liquid solidifies, its temperature decreases by 10 to 15 degrees. Both of these unique properties could potentially draw energy from a storm cloud or hurricane. But what happens when the gel falls to earth? Here is ocean water right here. You see it will dissolve it and reliquify it immediately on contact. To many, the product seemed too good to be true, and Dynamat quickly rushed it into testing. simply vanished off Doppler radar. Uh, from this view, it looks like we lost a big section out. One nice flying around uh, Lydia right now. Looks real good. When added to a cloud, Dynagel sucks up water and water vapor. Heavy with the captive water, the gel blobs simply drop from the sky. Dynamat's theory was that Dynagel could be added directly to the eye wall of a hurricane. The gel would capture the water vapor in the hurricane's upper regions and pull it to the ocean surface, depriving the storm of the energy it gets from its condensation engine. But like cloud seeding, Dynagel's effectiveness is impossible to prove. Cloud behavior is simply too unpredictable to generate conclusive results. Even if it does work, Hurricanes are big, and uh, some scientists at uh, NOAA's Hurricane Research Division sat down and did some basic calculations, and they figured to even control a moderate-sized hurricane, you would need so much of this stuff, it'd take from 350 to 400 C-5 transport planes. I don't even know if the Air Force has 400 C-5s. And using Dynagel in large volumes would not be cheap. Seeding a single hurricane could cost millions of dollars in materials alone. And what about the potential consequences if such an experiment were to go terribly awry? It wouldn't be the first time. On the night of August 15, 1952, the RAF dispatched specially modified gliders to the Lynmouth District of southwestern England. 
unknown to civilians at the time and classified for decades afterwards, the gliders carried an experimental cloud seeding agent. The plan was to release it into an oncoming storm. Within 24 hours, 35 people were dead and 420 were homeless. North Devon Village had been virtually washed away. Although the British Ministry of Defense denied involvement at the time, recently declassified information has verified that the experiment took place. But it was over a decade later that the first big international story finally triggered the uproar that would spell the end of weather wars. Seymour Hersh at the New York Times broke the story. Though they had denied it for more than seven years, the U.S. military had been using weather modification as a weapon in Vietnam and Laos. Starting in 1966, the United States Air Force had made over 2,600 top-secret cloud-seeding flights. Codenamed Project Popeye, this clandestine operation attempted to turn key enemy transport roads to mud, rendering them impassable. They concentrated on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, a main supply line for the North Vietnamese. They didn't just try to change the weather one or two days, they tried to change the whole climate over the Ho Chi Minh Trail by making it rain more there so that the North Vietnamese supply lines would get bogged down in mud. Although uncontestable proof is impossible where weather is concerned, anecdotal evidence at the time made it clear the U.S. military was getting results. As a result of the international uproar over Project Popeye, on the 10th of December 1976, the United Nations passed General Assembly Resolution 3172. It explicitly banned the use of weather modification in warfare. The weather wars were over, at least temporarily. But even after deadly experiments, secret military schemes, political censure, and ongoing scientific skepticism, modern rainmakers persevere. From bizarre private sector storm absorption products to radical new modeling theories, the reality of weather modification is becoming more and more unavoidable. The parallels between weather modification and the nuclear age are striking. If we can build a thing, should we? And if it's possible, is there any way to stop it? This is the high-frequency active auroral research project jointly managed by the Air Force Research Laboratory and the Office of Naval Research. Its stated purpose? Communications research. But many scientists worldwide, including the holder of the technology's patent, claim that this facility has another, more insidious capability. Experimental manipulation of the atmosphere to control the weather. Bernard Eastman is a plasma physicist, former fusion researcher for the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission, and inventor who has three weather control patents. Eastland's specialty is revolutionary mechanisms of energy transfer. That was exactly the reason that the Atlantic Richfield Oil Company approached him with a unique problem to solve. I was originally hired by ARCO in about 1984 to find a use of their natural gas on the north slope of Alaska. They have 23 trillion cubic feet of natural gas. To put this in perspective, that's enough gas to power the entire American electrical grid for one year. 
but its location was so remote, there was no economically feasible way to transport it. Dr. Eastland had been contracted with them to find a way to exploit the natural gas on the North Slope. In other words, to convert natural gas um, to money, <laughs> but first to turn it to electricity and then radio frequency energy. I came up with the idea of using the energy in the gas to make electricity and to use the electricity to power a large phased array antenna that could modify the ionosphere in different ways. Eastland's massive antenna array invention was called HARP, the High Frequency Active Auroral Research Project. The claims being made about the technology were such that I really, it was almost unbelievable. Although the HARP antenna array looks unremarkable, its capabilities are not. HARP is one of the few man-made devices capable of heating the Earth's ionosphere. The ionosphere is an enveloping layer of charged particles located 90 miles above the surface, above the atmosphere as most of us know it. The charged particles in the ionosphere perform a very important function for the planet. They deflect and absorb the solar wind, the toxic onslaught of deadly particles thrown at us by the sun. Without the ionosphere, life as we know it on Earth would perish. Eastland's plan was to pump energy derived from natural gas directly into the ionosphere. The stated goal was communications research. Arco immediately understood the genius in Eastland's idea. And thanks to his patent, they were contracted by the U.S. military to build this incredible device. It's a very good research facility. Uh, it's minuscule compared to the size of the antenna I suggested in my patents. However, it's the first piece of what could become something bigger. But even in its current incarnation, it's the largest ionospheric heater in the world, capable of heating a 400 square mile area of the ionosphere to over 50,000 degrees. It's also a phased array, which means it's steerable and it can point where it wants to point. You can make those waves go where you want. What they have found is that by sending radio frequency energy up and focusing it as they do with, with these kinds of instruments, it causes a heating effect. And that heating literally lifts the ionosphere within a 30-mile uh, diameter area. They're in changing localized pressure systems or perhaps the route of jet streams. The idea of mod moving a jet stream is a phenomenal um, uh, event in terms of man being able to do this. The problem is we cannot model the system adequately. Long-term consequences of ionospheric heating are unknown. Changing weather in one place can have a devastating downstream effect. And HARP has already been accused of modifying the weather. A year 2000 article in Scientific American pointed out that a strange shift in the jet stream directly over Gakona, Alaska pushed colder air southward, causing a rare tornado outbreak in Florida. As a weapon of war, HARP's possible uses are daunting. Think about a 100,000-person army and your opposition, and say you could hit them with flooding rains and horrible conditions in terms of weather for several weeks, maybe months. You can degrade their ability to perform in the battlefield. HARP has other amazing implications as a multi-purpose weapon. Using ionospheric manipulation, it could disrupt enemy radio and cellular communication. It could even be used to sense, differentiate, and directly destroy enemy missiles. 
that's where war is headed in the 21st century. That's where these systems are headed in the 21st century. HARP's potential role as secret weapon of war has long been known in military circles. Numerous countries have lodged complaints against its use, pointing to it as an obvious violation of the NMOD Treaty outlawing environmental modification for weapons applications. The last three secretaries of defense have all called for the um, elimination, the dropping of this environmental treaty. This treaty was well thought out in the early 70s, ratified by our Congress in 78. That treaty needs to stay in effect. Through all of the controversy, HARP scientists have maintained that the array is intended only for pure research and that it has nowhere near the power necessary to truly change the weather. Regardless of its actual current use, HARP does exist, and by next year the array will more than double in size. And the American military interest in weather modification doesn't end with HARP. At this base in Florida, Air Force weapons researchers and nanoparticle specialists are conducting weather control experiments, but their goal is quite surprising. We are an explosives laboratory that are de developing the next generation explosives for the Air Force, penetration warheads, air blast bombs, just a whole grouping of different type of munitions. And the, the purpose, obviously, is to um, to um, destroy things and to stop the enemy. That's what we do. That's what the Air Force's mission role is, to, is to, um, to win wars and break things, right? But in this instance, Glenn is talking about breaking something unusual, a tornado. In 1999, there was a tornado that ripped through uh, uh, Oklahoma City, Norman, Oklahoma area. It was $1.3 billion worth of damage. Lots of people dead. I, I thought, why, why do we have to always have a defensive role here? Why couldn't we maybe look at it as an offensive role? Greg Glenn's first idea was to use the tools he knew. Why not just blow up a tornado to disrupt its airflow and force it to dissipate? We found in our initial calculations that the, the energy required was tremendous. We were not able to really get any kind of reasonable amount of, uh, of change or, or perturbation in the flow field. Glenn began to investigate the science of tornado development. He found that one school of scientists strongly believed that the energy released by lightning strikes was the engine that created tornadoes. We believe the development of a tornado and the, the sustaining of, of a tornado is basically powered by the lightning itself. Now here's what we're saying. If we can forestall or interrupt that final, final stage, of, right before that trigger fires a tornado, if we could interrupt that, slow it down in some way, could we conceivably prevent the tornado from forming? To accomplish this trigger interruption, Greg Glenn suggests a massive nanoparticle infusion directly into the intracloud chamber where lightning would begin to brew a tornado. The particles he suggests are fly ash, an inexpensive byproduct of industrial combustion. Unlike standard cloud seeding materials, the purpose of these microscopic insulators is not to promote rain. What we're basically trying to do is short circuit the final phase of that tornado formation. Short circuit. 
while U.S. Air Force researcher Greg Glenn focuses his nanoscale expertise on the tornado as enemy, scientists worldwide confront what may be our most daunting weather challenge, global warming. experienced the fury of a tornado knows just how inhospitable the earth can be. And weather researchers tell us it may be getting worse. In the American state of Oklahoma alone, data shows a more than 400% increase in tornadoes since the mid-1940s. For many, this is just one of the sobering effects of global warming. Although global warming is now accepted internationally as a potentially deadly phenomenon, a hundred years ago, many scientists actually thought global warming could be used as a constructive tool. People proposed that we dig up extra coal in order to warm the climate up, dig up coal and burn it at the surface. The thinking was people burned more fossil fuels, it would warm the planet up and it would push the limits of agriculture northwards so people could grow more food for an expanding population in a positive way. But the idea of turning the Arctic into a garden by burning fossil fuels was short-lived. In the mid-1950s, especially with the coming of the nuclear bomb and of chemical pollutants, it appeared that we could turn gardens into deserts. We no longer saw ourselves as in our garden surrounded by an encroaching savage nature and battling it back. Rather, we saw ourselves as the potential danger and nature is what was being surrounded and beaten back. If global warming is any measure, the signs that we've beaten back nature are everywhere. The current consensus, and I must emphasize that it is a consensus in which almost all scientists, even many of the so-called skeptics, will sign into, it is likely that a hundred years from now the world will be very substantially warmer. And it's further uh, widespread consensus that this change may not happen continuously, that sometime between next year and a hundred years from now there will be a lurch in the system. It appears over the next century the greatest weather modification challenge may be controlling the environment to counteract the inevitable damage humans will cause. Not surprisingly, there are a host of massive geoengineering projects on the drawing board to do just that. One proposal suggests purposefully injecting large amounts of specialized dust into the upper atmosphere, essentially mimicking an enormous volcanic eruption. When a volcano erupts, it inundates the atmosphere with ash particles. These particles reflect sunlight back into space and block it from hitting the ground, causing a rapid cooling of the planet. We saw the Earth cool quite dramatically in a period of a year or so after the Pentatubo explosion. It's easy to observe. And so people have long proposed since the mid-60s that you could artificially add dust to the stratosphere and cool the planet. Not that this would be a good solution for global warming. It would not. But it does show the way we're steadily developing the powers to manipulate the planet with comparative ease. It's been proposed that this same result could even be achieved by controlling the composition and location of airliner contrails. And there are some significantly more offbeat solutions. One of these suggests that we could fertilize the ocean with iron. By doing so, we would cause massive blooms of phytoplankton, which would consume our excess carbon dioxide and sink that CO2 to the bottom, helping to prevent global warming. 
because one of the pioneers says, give me a tanker full of iron oxides and I'll give you an ice age. Another simple approach focuses on the Earth's hungriest carbon dioxide eaters, trees. Like the ocean, plants can act as a carbon sink. They consume damaging carbon dioxide and lock it up in their cellular structure, keeping it out of the atmosphere for their lifetime and helping to prevent the planet from heating up. The carbon in a plant, say in a leaf or a stem or a root, comes in many different forms. And one of the most long-lived forms is called lignin. So it's a form that breaks down slowly when it's in the soil. And if you genetically modified a plant to increase the amount of lignin in it, you would probably increase the carbon sink. Perhaps the image of genetically modified trees seems extreme, but many scientists believe that radical action will be required to keep the planet human-friendly. And if we don't solve the global warming problem on Earth, we may have an even tougher job ahead, making our nearest planetary neighbor hospitable. Some are already planning it. When we look around our solar system and imagine where might life go next, well, Mars comes up as an obvious candidate. The idea of terraforming Mars, changing its weather and building a breathable atmosphere from scratch is not as far-fetched as you might think. Well, the, the basic problem with making Mars habitable is warming it up. Well, we know how to warm up planets. We're doing it here on Earth. Well, on Earth, it's probably not a good idea, but on Mars, that would be just what would be needed. So one could imagine releasing into the Mars atmosphere the same kind of super greenhouse gases that we're releasing into our atmosphere. Our calculations using climate models suggest that we need to push Mars artificially about 20 degrees centigrade. We need to do that with these super greenhouse gases. Once we push it that far, it will then roll on its own the rest of the way. Mars's polar ice caps contain vast stores of frozen carbon dioxide and substantial water. These would be the basic building blocks of a habitable Mars. As the water trapped in Mars's polar regions began to melt, it would create massive natural oceans. For NASA scientists like Chris McKay, the concept of terraforming Mars as a human habitat is not simply a dream. It's an inevitable requirement for species survival. But there are many difficult questions yet to answer. Will the nations of Earth be capable of cooperating in a project of this size? And perhaps more importantly, do we have a right to do with Mars whatever we please? Should we do it? Given that I think we can do it, should we do it? To me, the best analogy is doing CPR. You're walking down the street, someone falls over dead, or you found a body there, you go and bring it back to life. You haven't created a human being. You've restored a human being to life. I think that's the appropriate metaphor for Mars. And other people might disagree. Other people might think that, that it is not our place to change the universe. That there's a big sign, do not touch, hanging all over everything. But I personally think that the value of life is, is a stronger one. That the universe is not to be preserved, but to be gardened. And that we are the gardeners. But if we are to be gardeners, perhaps we should start in our own backyard. I think in general, at a very high level, we have no choice but to assume management responsibilities for the Earth. There are just too many of us, we live in too many places, and we have too much of an impact to just let nature run its course. That's really not an option anymore. Whether we like it or not, uh, the atmosphere is being modified by human activity. 
inadvertent modification. So we are living with it. We must do something about it. Chemically fertilizing the oceans. Beaming microwaves to Earth. Covering the ocean's surface with polymers. Steering hurricanes. None of these are far-fetched. But the question remains, a question whose answer may lead to the next golden era or to absolute devastation, the end of our species. When we finally own the weather, what will we do with it? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.